0: What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes
1: and leave a five-star review. Thank you. December 1980, over three consecutive nights, this took place... two military bases somewhere between 50 and 80 miles northeast of London. On the first night of activity some security police and law enforcement personnel saw strange multicolored lights in the forest. Their first thought was maybe a light aircraft has crashed. We should kind of go out there immediately and investigate. Well they found out that there wasn't an aircraft crash. Nothing like that had been reported but they
2: did.
0: Nick, you're the first British guy in here. I finally checked it off the diversity list.
1: <laughs> okay. The British are coming. <laughs> the British are coming. Actually, the British are here.
0: Well, we well, we kind of fought a war over this in 1776. It didn't go as well for you guys. No, I don't know if you're still
1: bitter, but... Well, no, we're all friends now. <laughs> That's good, but you're, you're a New Yorker now, too. Yes, I've lived here since... August. Uh, My wife is a professor and she got uh, essentially headhunted. She's a visiting fellow at Heterodox Academy. So we moved to New York for a year.
0: And what does she do as a professor?
1: Physical anthropology. So she studies skeletal remains and from that makes kind of uh, calculations about past Hmm. peoples, how they lived, how they died, their diseases, their diet, their lifestyle, all of that.
0: And you were saying we were just talking off camera before you came in here, you were saying that she was under attack for identifying remains as female or something like that. Is that right?
1: Yes. She was due to speak at the American Anthropological Association at their annual general meeting as part of a panel to discuss the importance of biological sex. And as a physical anthropologist, Elizabeth was going to talk about how skeletal remains are, are of course, either male or female. And that. She was told that's hate speech. We are so fucked. It, it might cause harm to the LGBTQ whatever the rest you of the did, yeah, thing. Yeah, you did a good job. Yeah. Um, good I was nearly there. Yeah, you were um, right there. And, and yeah, anyway, so all nonsense, of course, because uh, she said, look, people can identify as whatever gender they like, but, you know, whatever you, you – believe or, or identify as, your skeleton is only ever going to be male or female That's when they right. dig you up in 10,000 years' time. No hate speech, out. <laughs> so, it's, like they say, the only time in 122-year history of the AAA that they've actually accepted a panel and then cancelled it once the Wokarati Found out the about
0: it. I like that. I'm going to use that. It's really <laughs> good. Well, we might have to get her in for a podcast to talk all about that. That's uh, fascinating
1: to me. Well, it was a huge sure. story. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was uh, in the New York Times, uh, Fox News covered it, Newsmax, you lots guys, of other places. You guys
0: are just the news family over there. Yeah. You guys are everywhere. Can't get away from the popes.
1: No, interesting. But your your whole
0: backstory is something that people had turned me on to maybe about six months ago. I had been unfamiliar with, with your work and everything, but over here we kind of look at the Chris Mellons and the Lou Elizondos of the world as the ones who were in the U.S. government working on things that at least had to do with UFOs. Obviously Lou was like literally the head of the ATIP desk for that. But over in Britain, you were, as I understand it, effectively at one point, that guy for the British Ministry of Defence. Am I saying that correctly?
1: You are, yes. I was a civilian employee of the UK Ministry of Defence, which is essentially the equivalent of the DOD here. And my job, they move you around every few years. I was was there, as I say, 21 years. Lots of different postings at various different grades, but from 91 through to 94 – I ran their UFO program. Mm-hmm. Now, we were a public-facing program, unlike ATIP. So we were more in common with the old U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book. Uh, we took reports from the public. We investigated those. Um, we, you could look us up in the phone book. We weren't a secret. We did some classified work. Interesting. Okay. So, so there are similarities with ATIP, but differences too. I was. A,
0: I'm a little bit off on that because that that makes sense from your end, but I didn't realize a tip. I know that. I guess the desk itself was secret for a long time, but when public reportings happened, my understanding was that they did. They were in charge of looking into that. You just, as you put it, couldn't find them in the phone book. Is that the only difference you're
1: pointing out? Well, a, a tip. Um, no, I would say it goes further than that. I. I'm not sure. And, of course, Congress is getting into this at the moment. I'm not sure there was, for example, proper congressional oversight mm. of the ATIP program. It was kind of buried and disguised as something else. And even when the Defense Intelligence Agency wrote to Congress in January of 2018, just a few weeks after the New York Times broke the story about ATIP. They were still trying to dress it up and they were saying tip is a program that looked at next generation aircraft and weapon threats to the US, which was just not true mm. because they attached at Annex a list of the... Uh, studies that they had done under the ATIC program and none of them were about Russia or China or aircraft production or, or drones or missiles they were all about anti-gravity and visibility warp drive wormholes stargates mm. all that kind of weird x-file stuff
0: yeah and for your whole life though leading up to this I guess how, how old were you when when you went to that desk um
1: uh, gosh i think uh, mid 20s i guess so i was i was at the junior managerial uh, grade which was um the, the grade was called executive officer and and it was the first rung on the management chain that would eventually take you up to the the senior civil service so i i was you know not at the time obviously That far progressed in my career, but it was one of those niche jobs that exist from from time to time, uh, where you are the deep specialist. And and you say you are on this, you are running it. you, You are, yeah, you are the subject matter expert. And if if the Secretary of Defense gets, for example, a question in Parliament that needs to be responded to, I was the one drafting the answer
0: and you're like 26. I'm like 26 <laughs> or whatever
1: whatever I was. Yeah, yeah. So it's wow. but that's that's part of when you are identified as I I think I was as a potential high flyer, they deliberately give you challenging jobs and deliberately pick those sorts of jobs where there isn't necessarily that that kind of safety net of lots of other people who do the same thing where where really you are one of the only people who who have that deep specialist knowledge of it and it's it's sink or swim and yeah. you are expected to swim what was your job for them immediately before getting that one immediately before i was a, a briefer and and so my job was to take large and complex amounts of information involving Royal Air Force personnel Mm. issues. And that could be anything from pensions through to medical and dental care, through to recruitment, retention, whatever it was, anything on the personnel side. I was the briefer for a post called AMP, which was the air member for personnel. So I had to put his briefing packs together for the uh, I'm sorry I'm throwing a lot of acronyms out no, but you good. asked yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a top level personnel committee called the PPOs which was the principal personnel officers and that's where basically the army the navy the air force get together to discuss personnel issues with a view to trying to integrate them and make sure that there aren't single service differences mm. it was that time when everything was about jointery. And uh, purple, as, mm. as we called it, make it purple. Um, so don't have the Air Force do one thing and the Army do another because otherwise the, the Air Force person will be saying, well, how come he gets all this medical and dental right. care that I don't? Right. So that was my job, briefing, um, putting together briefing packs for those meetings. And in that kind of job, obviously, you're reporting to people.
0: Yes. Whereas, I, meaning, let me better state that. You're not the head of the whole shebang you're you're an important piece of the cog, but then they move you to something where you're
1: technically like the head of the whole shebang with it. Yes, because it, there really isn't i mean everyone everyone's got a boss, so of course right i had some I had a boss, he wrote my report, um, he had a boss, and mm-hmm. he yeah, and so on. but in terms of a boss who has that knowledge of the subject, no. With the UFO program, that, that was very much ring-fenced and the subject matter expert, the executive officer posted to that position is, is really – that's where the buck stops.
0: Was this something you had been interested a ton in as a child? Like were you thinking about extraterrestrials or even less than that? Were you, were you always interested in space and you had expressed that before getting this job or was this something that was thrown on you in trial by fire?
1: I really didn't have a, a previous interest. I guess I was interested in space. I, mm. And I mean, at school, when I was about 10 or something, I did a project on the solar system, but it was, it was very science-y. Um, I had, as a kid, I guess, seen, as, as pretty much everyone had, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, yeah. Spielberg. I had read, I think, the book, the bermuda triangle which had one chapter on ufo's i think charles Blitz. but that was about it and it it was not it was not top of my list of of interests or anything like that so i really had no no deep knowledge of ufo's or interest or belief it's just that that vacancy opened up at pretty much the time i was due for a move so it mm. it just seamlessly came together.
0: Now, did you have a say in getting that job, or was it they just brought it to you and said you're doing this?
1: Well, it was a slightly unusual situation. At the time, the Ministry of Defence had a personnel department, and every three years or so, either on promotional level transfer, you would be moved, so that you got experience of of different parts of the department, and you built up a good general knowledge of how the Ministry of Defence Worked. You don't really want deep specialists who know, for example, contracts policy inside out, but know nothing about counterterrorism, security, um, you know, those sorts of things or personnel issues. So and you don't want somebody who's done all ops and mm. policy and knows nothing about finance. So the thinking was give someone a grounding in all the major areas of the department's business so that, that there aren't any gaps in their knowledge. So the personnel department handled those moves, but I had I had been posted, as I mentioned, to Secretariat Air Staff, which is the name of the division, doing this briefing job. And I'd been doing it for about two years. But for a number of reasons, I was looking to move out of of that. And then we had the first gulf war the persian gulf war uh saddam invading kuwait august 1990 uh the ground war starting i think in january 91 and during that period i was seconded into the joint operations center in the air force operations room again as a briefer a watchkeeper i i did 12-hour shifts we would monitor the information coming in in real time brief it up the chain um, that, that sort of thing. And I had worked very well with one particular manager. And he was the guy in this same division who had the, the vacancy coming mm. up. And he said to me, look, Nick, you know, we've worked together quite well in the Joint Operations Centre. I know that you're looking for a move. But instead of getting the personnel department to do a standard move, why don't we just do an internal reshuffle you come in and do the UFO job, and and we'll play it that way. And and so that's and what that's happens. what he called it, the UFO job. I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm trying to recollect a conversation right, that's right. 30 years ago. I mean, I I don't know if he quite put it like that, but um, yeah. However, he put it that that was the does what it said on the the tin. I mean, of course, we can get into this. There's a whole debate about what you should call that particular post. Um, Technically, it didn't have a name at all, aside from Secretariat Air Staff 2A.
0: God, everything sounds so smart and British, man. I know. Do you, do you ever just talk to us and think we're so dumb just based on how we talk? No, no. <laughs> and, and, you know,
1: I was having this discussion, actually, with, with Travis Taylor the other day. And um, we were talking about intelligence work. And we were saying, isn't it funny how some accents are perceived some, somehow as, as being less smart? And yes. I was saying, what an amazing thing! And of course, he he was saying, absolutely. We're saying, what an amazing thing it is, particularly in intelligence work, to be underestimated by yeah, someone. No, that's true. And, I'm being uh,
0: underestimated a lot. Then
1: let's go. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, no, I I I just have this bbc english accent yeah you're
0: like a touch off the kings it's not mm. quite you don't say like use for, yes. For the yes you, you yes. don't do that but like you're it's it's definitely high end
1: your majesty are you interested in environmental issues <laughs> yes yes <laughs> that was good you practice a little bit so God, I, I, off to the tower with me off with my head if i carry on down this road <laughs> sorry your majesty if they're you're not, listening they're
0: not gonna let you back in but what's the i, I cut you off with the when someone came to you and and your guy was telling you it's the UFO desk, and there was an argument between what to call the... the
1: yes, it's, it's not so much an argument then, but an argument now from people who write about it. Should we call it the UFO program? Should we call it the UFO project? The UFO desk? Should we stick to the actual divisional titles? And the reason we don't, it's, it's really only the media and the public that say things like UFO desk. Although, actually, I saw that... In parliament the other day so they have adopted it oh wow but we do we we have this kind of internally you want to speak you know when you're speaking to other people in the system you fall back on all the acronyms and divisional names because they know it and they say oh I'm in SECAS oh ah, yes I was there a few years ago and that's fine but if you're talking say to the media or, or, or someone outside the system They don't know that they, you know, secretary of their staff two A. Oh yes, two A, not two (laughs) B. And they're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? So you, you, that's where you use the sort of does what it says on the tin uh, things like UFO program. Sure. So
0: I, I guess the the thing that none of us can relate to is how that would look. I mean, we don't even know how it looks in any of these offices. You guys have to tell us about it, but. Thinking about the year there, this is what, 91? When are you coming on to that, 91. Okay. This seems to be so long before – this was back – I mean it's only recent years where UFOs and the idea of it have even been taken seriously by the mainstream in a way. But back then I'm thinking they got to be like, oh, great, the UFO guy over there. So I'm picturing a desk here that's like in a back musty room with, you know, like the mops on the side because you got to clean it yourself, some paper you can write on, no secretary. Is it like that or were you actually like – decked out a little bit
1: um it, it's somewhere between the two scenarios okay. uh, right. we i we were on the eighth floor of ministry of defense main building in Whitehall, Whitehall, White london okay and uh we had a great view actually out uh, literally over number 10 downing street
0: is that where the, in in the james bond movie where the explosion happens or that was no MI6. that was mi6 yeah, yeah, that's right the, that's right that,
1: Beautiful, actually. Yeah. It's one of the few pieces of modern architecture I actually like. But that's on the south south bank of, of the Thames, a little further up. Um, okay. Oh, this is it right here. Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, that's wow. it. it. It kind of looks a little Stalin esque, actually. A little bit. Um, I see the blocks. But uh, yeah, and interestingly, it's although it's a modern building, I think it went up in the forties or the fifties during the war. Um, it's built on the site of the old Whitehall Palace, and there's this really spooky moment that if you go down into the basement, you actually come across King Henry VIII's old wine cellar, which is restored to as it was in medieval days. Woo! And um, I had my leaving due there. And my father had his leaving do there. Uh, the, leaving do? the leaving
0: I, do. I think we're on British terms. Now.
1: Oh, uh, your your farewell party. Got it. See, even <laughs> that sounds <laughs> smart. Leaving do. Two two nations divided by a common
0: language. Yes, we are. Yeah, I was trying to figure out the British word for fed earlier, and I couldn't figure it out. So. Oh, right.
1: <laughs> we had to give you a label on the on the mug.
0: If you're trying to navigate market turbulence, why not set course to the Noble Gold Investments safe haven? With global uncertainty looming, your savings and retirement plans are under siege. But there's one asset that stood the test of time, gold. So unlock the peace of mind that comes with owning gold, the ultimate safe haven. And if precious metals are new to you, Noble Gold Investments will hold your hand throughout the entire process. Why? Because they have a team of experts who will guide you every step of the way to safety. Thousands of investors have sheltered their retirement savings with Noble Gold Investments. So don't leave yourself completely exposed to the markets right now. It's way too risky. With gold at an all-time high and looking to climb further, it's the perfect time to open a Noble Gold Investments IRA and secure your future along with a free gold bullion coin. Act now before it's too late. Go to noblegoldinvestmentscom Dory or call eight seven seven six four six. 5347. And if you do so right now, Noble Gold Investments will also give you one free three ounce silver American virtue coin as well. Once again, that's www.noblegoldinvestments.com slash Julian Dory, or simply hit the link in my description below. So head there now and open up your own gold IRA with the only gold company I trust. But you, So when you were down there though, it was four years. Are you looking... Because UFO, we forget this, it, it can mean other things besides E.T. It's, it's literally meant to be unidentified flying objects, so that could be a drone, it could be something else. But I'd heard you speak before where you said the, the quote was, it's Russian, not Martian, or something. Was that kind of the directive you got? Like, hey, we're probably looking at foreign intelligence here, don't worry about the aliens? Or were they saying, hey, just look for everything, and if it's alien, let us know?
1: Uh, the latter. You can't you, – well, let me rephrase that you can 't really be conclusion led in an investigation because then you mm. won 't do a good investigation. You should be data led and and so we were however you know just occam 's razor and common sense and the archive of previous files you know, somebody had done this job going way back to the the 50s um, tells you that, yes, you are more likely to be looking at misidentifications, sometimes hoaxes or delusions, but and sometimes sensor errors than extraterrestrials but we we didn't take the extraterrestrial hypothesis off the table. Mm. Um, it was in the mix, and as I say, we tried to be data led so so we tried to set aside preconceived views about whether aliens did or didn't exist and whether if they did, some of these UAP sightings were attributable, attributable to them or not. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. In pop culture, UFO equates to alien spacecraft, but that was not our view. Our view was if there is anything unidentified in the UK air defense region, we need to make every effort to, to try and find out what it is, and to determine, is there a potential threat in any of this? And conversely, are there opportunities? And and yes, when I'm saying threat, essentially, the thinking is most of those threats are going to turn out to be um, adversaries engaged in espionage. Because mm.
0: you're also coming into that desk at a weird time. Thatcher's leaving office, getting pushed out. She's been in there, I guess, for like twelve years. Margaret Thatcher. And we're also in 91. That's, that's when the Soviet Union officially fell, I believe, right? I always get that mixed up.
1: Yeah. We, now, I, I, was it? Yeah, I'm trying to think of, of the fall of the Soviet Union and then the wall the coming wall was down. Before, the right? wall was 89, yes. I think. And so, yeah, 91, that sounds right.
0: Right. So it's at a weird inflection point. Not that people suddenly are, like, trusting everything about Russia, but it's not. You're not coming in there in 74, you know, at like the height of the Cold War. No. But it sounds like that was still if, – if there was any foreign adversary that was going to be perceived as a threat, it was still like, look, Russia. And that's, yes. that's what it is.
1: And it was a real culture change. Like, I mean the, the Falklands War happened yep. before I joined the Ministry of Defense. But if it's you like 83, 84? Had 80, 81, I think it was. Okay. Um, if you had said to someone in 1980 – what do you think? Where do you think? Against which country do you think the next three wars in which the UK will be involved? What do you think those three countries are? I guarantee nobody would have said Argentina, <laughs> um, the former Yugoslavia, and Iraq. Right. They would have said Russia, Russia, and, and maybe Russia. China. Russia, <laughs> Russia, but, but Russia. yeah, Russia. Yeah. Yeah. And and absolutely. So you're right. It's an an interesting question because it was a pivotal moment um, in all our lives, but particularly for anyone in in the Ministry of Defense, because you had to do this narrative flip. And for a while, there was a, a, I mean, only half serious, but a sort of, does this mean we're done? Can we pack (laughs) up and go home? I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there was this sort of struggle to... Identify what your new role would be and how geopolitically things would change. Mm. And there were some, I think, misguided as it turned out. But, um, you know, for example, the armed armed forces found itself getting in increasingly to things like counter-narcotics and even the fight against organized crime which were arguably more properly, I think, the provenance of other parts of government. But that's another sure. story.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, we'd go down a rabbit hole in that one for sure. Yeah, But to, to keep you on track with, <laughs> with your career, what was going on, when, when you go to a desk, even, actually even before you went to that desk, when you were working as a briefer, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's not the kind of job where you are coordinating with other governments say intelligence or defense services as much right
1: no those those jobs were more flying solo type you would right. get you would uh, reach out to the various subject matter experts, get the raw data in and and then you would sit at your desk, read everything, try and really mentally digest it, and, and then try and find a way to take all this large complex data and boil it down to the key issues and then make a recommendation for the senior people that you're briefing and say, this is what the issue is. This is the background to the issue. These are the various different um, opinions and and key facts. And this is the recommendation for the way forward.
0: So the question is then when you got to the UFO desk, I'll just call it that for people following out there. Did that completely change and now you are discussing a lot of things with, say, American counterparts, French counterparts, and Allied governments? Or is it still very much this is an internal British project and we're going to keep it to ourselves?
1: It changed not with the foreign engagement because there was very little mm. Um for a number of reasons and we can get into this please um, the the British government like a lot of governments was was very very ring fenced on this you would think and common sense would say hey look this is a global phenomena shouldn't we be at least talking to allies sure um, and and you know finding out what adversaries know for example um, but our brief, our remit was very narrowly defined. So, for example, somewhere in the terms of reference, it said investigate any sightings within the UK air defence region. So, we had no jurisdiction, um, no legal remit to, for example, investigate a UFO sighting in French airspace. Mm. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't say, well, look, couldn't what the French are doing and have found out inform our own investigations? And absolutely, we should have been doing more of that. But I can probably count on the finger, the fingers of one hand, um, the number of times wow. that I liaised with other nations about UAP uh, through the embassies.
0: I wouldn't have guessed that.
1: No. And, and it's a problem. I mean, fast forwarding way, I mean, after I left the Ministry of Defence in 2010, I attended a Royal Society discussion meeting in the UK about UAP or or rather more focused on the scientific search for extraterrestrial life. And the then director of the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, the, the Malaysian astrophysicist, Dr. Maslin Othman, was there. And some people were saying to her, shouldn't the UN take a coordinating role Mm. with this? And she's like, yeah, well, if you come to us with consensus, fine. But A, that wasn't going to happen. And B, it was fairly clear the UN didn't want that role.
0: They didn't want it?
1: They didn't want it.
0: Why do you think that
1: is? I think because of the pop culture baggage that's associated with the term UFO. Right. Uh, that's part of it, but you know, the other, I mean, part of it is maybe the, the bureaucrats natural aversion to taking any new work on board, particularly in a subject where you could say, well, look, people have been working away at this for 70, 80 years without resolution because it's still called the UFO mystery. Um, this doesn't sound like something very productive in terms of us suddenly being able to to cut through it all and come up with with definitive answers so but it, it just illustrates the the fact that this was not done on an international basis now to answer the other part of your question, yes, my job changed because suddenly I went from being a briefer doing internal work to being in what was a public facing program. I mean people knew that the Ministry of Defense investigated UFOs, and indeed nine out of ten of the reports we received, maybe two or three hundred each year, whatever it was. Would
0: you ever, like, go on the news and, and talk about this while you were on this desk? Like, did people know you at that time
1: at all? People did know me. Um, it's, it's, again, it's an interesting question. Normally, the subject matter expert does not go on TV. Normally, the specialist press officers go on TV. Right. But it was felt that the subject of UAP was so complex and labyrinthine in terms of its 80-year or 70-year at the time backstory, say, that they would do an experiment and instead of having the the public affairs folks do the interviews and get briefed by the subject matter experts, they would put the subject matter expert, i.e. me, on TV and Give me the media training. So they, uh-huh. they flipped it. And so, yes, on a couple of occasions, I was the man from the ministry. Uh, so you're a
0: real trained pro on smartly this. Smartly this dressed, point. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and I, of course, we joke about it now, but I, of course, was the debunker because it was my job to to frame this in terms of nothing to see, you know, move along. Uh, we consistently downplayed the true extent of our interest and involvement mm. in this, and and so yeah, there were you are told to do that. Yes. Downplay it. Yes, it, it, it was. I mean, we were given we were given and I, at points in my job. I probably updated them, so had a hand in shaping them. But we had key messages, key lines to take on mm. this. Which you would always, whatever you were asked, you would always try and bring it back to those key messages and lines to take, even if it wasn't specific to the question that was asked. So I don't know if you watched the old comedy series, Yes Minister. I did. Great spoof of British politics. And they have a line in there, which is funny because it's so true, where he gets, uh, the main character gets asked an awkward question. And he he smiles at the broadcaster and he says, well, that's a very interesting question. But, you know, (laughs) that's not the real issue here. The real (laughs) issue. and the question on which the British people want an answer is, and then you go straight back to your key message. And our key message on UAP was this is pretty much all misidentification. Um, Russian,
0: not Martian. Russian,
1: not Martian. Well, we didn't want to say Russian either. Oh, you didn't want to even say that? No, no. I thought this was the popular time to be like, not the Soviets. No, you don't want the implication that somehow because that would be an implication that that, wait a minute what about all Mm. our air defense network are you telling us the russians have snuck a spy plane past our radar systems we haven't got our quick reaction alert aircraft up to intercept them and they're flying over you know rural hampshire Mm. with with Nobody having a clue about this? No, absolutely not. So, so we, we just framed it in terms of, um, you know, to the inexperienced observer, uh, bright stars and planets or <laughs> aircraft lights or weather balloons can, can be, you know, yeah. It was MH370 up there. Don't worry yeah. about it. You didn't see yeah. anything. <laughs> nothing to see.
0: <laughs> so I guess I'm curious with the same question you've probably gotten your whole life about that first day in there though and you go you sit down at the desk and now i assume being the head of this desk you're read in on i'll say a majority of the let's say intel they have on this kind of stuff did, did you just sit there for days and read through files and say are fucking aliens real
1: <laughs> no i mean of course it was my first question um whether it was articulated out loud or not i don't know but it was like we had a whole filing cabinet of of files and and many more at the public records office and in our own internal archives as i mentioned there's been a formal program looking at this since 1953 and we had some even older sightings that occurred during the second world war of of so-called foo fighters so for example, Royal Air Force pilots in bomber command on missions over Germany and occupied Europe would occasionally encounter not just balls of light but sometimes strange metallic craft keeping track with their aircraft, not, not firing on them. And those sorts of reports went into the files. So we, we had files on this dating back to about 43 God, why does
0: everything happen World War Two and on? Yeah, you know,
1: um, you know, it may have happened before, but but you, you can have an argument about when we really got got a, a, a sort of global media set up in a way that, that yeah. it wasn't just so compartmentalised that one small town just read those small town stories or not. I, I don't know.
0: But there, de- you're saying that the pilots were describing. I'm just, you know, where my head's going with this when they say small metallic object. I'm thinking very similarly to what we've seen with the tic tacs. Yes, from the Nimitz. Is it that kind of type thing? Not necessarily the same, but that's along the lines of what they were seeing.
1: Similar, yes, yes. There are there are similarities for sure. Hmm. And and those old bomber command files. I I've pointed at some researchers in that direction, and i th- i think someone wrote an entire book on it uh, so there's some good information out there and it's it's quite surprising people have this view that they were all just balls of light and which enables the skeptics to say oh, come on it's a war zone it's it's probably aaa and yeah. and all of that but it was it went further than that it was in in some occasions it was what looked like structured metallic craft hundreds of feet in in diameter
0: whoa hundreds of feet
1: yeah so you know, th- there was something going on. So, so yeah, that uh, I had access to those archives of files, and of course, I I wanted to know. Well, what have we found out about this? But um, but going back to that point about my first day, actually, in your first week, you you actually shadowed your predecessor. So, what what happened was that I came in on the Monday morning my predecessor was there and so you put the the two chairs at the one desk and he's the one who who briefs you and you watch him in action we had literally a hotline where the public could phone up and call in reports we got some by letter as well some came in via military signal this is all before before still yeah. this yeah. is wild this is like yeah back in the day you'd literally get get mail the the uh the the clerical staff the admin staff would come in with the morning post and it would come into your in tray and you would open it up literally and it would be you know dear sir slash madam uh, i am a retired air force officer and i was out walking my dog last tuesday when i saw this and and so it would happen like that and so that that first week i was shadowing my predecessor And then the tradition was that increasingly he would hand over to you as the week went on. You would be expected to to be more and more read in. Uh, You would be expected to be answering the the correspondence, dealing with the calls yourself. And on the very last day, of course, you would work the morning. And then at lunchtime, um, my my predecessor would have his uh, farewell Mm. drinks and uh, you would give him a good send-off. And then that next Monday, that it's was... It's all you. It's all you.
0: Now, are you getting extra security clearances and ex- and being, I guess, like double-checked to be read in on extra stuff now because of the nature of this desk? Or was it... Not... Same old...
1: No, not because of the nature of the desk. Um, most, I would say, 80 90% of the work that we did on that desk was at unclassified level which is is kind of logical because a lot of it is taking those public reports and and then investigating them with with open source people like like the Royal Greenwich Observatory this is how you do an mm. investigation by the way yes. you, you know you 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 get the data in relating to the sighting when and where did it take place and what's the description? And then you try and correlate that with something you either know about or can find out about. So you talk to, to the astronomers. You talk to the meteorologists. Uh, you talk to the radar people. If you've got a photo or video, you talk to the, the imagery analysis folks. Now, those would be within the intelligence community. So that does take you into classified work. Now, I already had a very high security clearance. As did my predecessor, because even at
0: a young age, because of what you did. I guess because PTB, of yeah.
1: actually because of the Gulf War. Um, when when I mentioned being seconded into the Joint Operations Centre, mm-hmm. you were literally seeing real time information about Scud launches, for example. So mm-hmm. so you had access to to satellite data. Um, you know, I probably can't say too much more about that. Okay. But but yeah, I had what was what was at the time in the, the UK called positive vetting. Everyone has negative vetting to even be allowed through the front door. That's make sure you don't have a criminal record, uh, make sure that there's nothing unusual on your um, finance side, like either large unexplained payments or financial problems that would render you ah, vulnerable yes. to blackmail. Right. Everyone gets that kind of basic background check. And I say basic for the Ministry of Defence, it's obviously quite quite advanced and complex. But for the 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 jobs that involve a high level of access to top-secret information, for example, on a semi-regular or regular basis, for that you need positive vetting. Nowadays in the US, you would call that a, a, a TSSCI clearance. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Top-secret. Slash sensitive compartmentalized information. And what and kinds of things are they looking for on that? In in when you were being security vetted, um, anything and everything. They literally they went back to your your almost to your kindergarten. They mm. would talk to every principal that you. Did. They would talk to your your family, your friends, your teachers, your bank manager, anyone that you had worked with. Um then they and and anything that didn't check out they would grill you on relentlessly like so for example when i was about 15 16 i did a summer job and i worked in an old people's home uh doing the the dishes and mm-hmm. i worked at a, a a record warehouse taking orders and putting them in a like a cart for for shipment out but that company had gone bust Mm -hmm. and this was before the internet or, and, and so it was a period of unaccounted for time because I was like, well, it was called PRT records and I know I don't have the address because it was through an employment agency. And these people came back to me four or five times because they couldn't nail it down. and They I thought was like, you were a Soviet spy, man. I was like, man. yeah. It, like, <laughs> is any period of unaccounted for time, they think you're back at Moscow Center. Right, right. Being, being, you know, whatever. So I was like, well, maybe it was PTR records and not PRT. And look, I don't know the number, but this is the street it was on. and And then you would be called in for the dreaded final interview. And it was good cop, bad cop, only it was... Actually, two bad cops, oh. and they got. And they were in like circuit breakers. They on were their not quite like that. They didn't exactly <laughs> waterboard us, and uh, we didn't. We didn't have to actually take uh, because it's not legally admissible or, or usable in the UK. We didn't do a polygraph check. Or anything like that. Neither did we have random drug tests. What do you
0: mean it's not legally admissible?
1: Well, it's it's not uh, in in the British criminal justice system. I, I don't think you can use polygraph information. Right, but that's different for a background check, it, right? It I is think it's the same here. It, but the feeling was: look, if you can't use it in the criminal justice system, oh. then surely that says something about its reliability, and we will rely on old fashioned. Methods And the old-fashioned methods were, like I say, going through every aspect of your background, talking to everyone that that knows you, whether they're family, friends, colleagues, whoever it is. And then, as I say, the dreaded final interview to – and they have – these are usually retired um, cops. But senior cops who've investigated – I mean detectives who've, who've done like homicides and the most serious of crimes who have interviewed hostile witnesses who are often quite smart, sort of people in organized crime. And the job of these people is to break you down, mm-hmm. to try and find inconsistencies in your story, um, anything like that. And, and so this is the the positive vetting process doesn't sound very positive it's not very positive well, no. it's positive for them yeah. because they find they find people who aren't you know being entirely truthful about things and you, so know, you had that happen before it's the Gulf not, War, you were saying i had had that to enable me to be seconded into they right. didn't have enough people to do these 12 hour shifts on and off um 24/7 so what they did is they took people who said, yeah, we can do it. And they wanted people at the younger end of the spectrum who who had the energy to do like seven 12-hour shifts in a row. Then you would go home, um, you know, come back and do another 12-hour shift, do that for a week. And then if you were doing day shifts, you'd take a break, go back to your normal duties, come back, and then you'd do nights. So they they wanted people kind of – in their twenties, they also wanted high flyers and they wanted people who either had that positive vetting or were prepared to go through that process. And I said, Yeah, bring it on. And mm. because of course, that in that opens up to you a much wider range of, of the more interesting jobs. So of course, people with nothing to hide are like, Yeah, I'll I'll do that. And it's a UFO little UFO desk, let's go. Yeah. So I didn't need the security clearance for the ufo job but part of the job involved working alongside uh, people in defense intelligence staff so scientific and technical intelligence folks and they wouldn't sit down and talk to you openly unless you had that higher level of security so so my predecessor had it because of his gulf war work my successor actually had it because she had done a briefing job associated with special forces, but not everyone over the, the history of that job had it. And and I think those people kind of got cut out a bit.
0: Mm. Some of the other people, though, whether it be the person before you, the person after you, or the other people after them, has there been anyone who worked that desk who is
1: as publicly open or publicly open at all like you are? No. In fact, only one person had previously spoken openly about that. And that was a former head of the division. Uh, that of what was, division? Of Secretariat Air Staff, the whole oh. division. So 25, 30 people, yeah. whatever it was. And and so that individual sat at a much higher grade. And his name was Ralph Noyce. And um, he, he, after he retired... He spoke about his time being head of that division, and he said, well, one of the things that our division did was was the UFOs. And he said, "Now, I was not the, the desk officer doing it, but I was the head of the division. So, of course, his opinion on this and his involvement was very important because he was someone who had a degree of oversight of this. And somewhat bizarrely, he actually wrote a fictional book called A Secret Property. Which was a thinly disguised, fictional retelling of the Rendlesham Forest incident, which was Britain's best-known UFO case.
0: Can you walk us through <laughs> that? That's actually a great segue. Oh, it, it is. Through isn't how it? a
1: lot, a lot of people
0: in America, I, I just heard about this recently, but a lot of us we don't know this story like we know Roswell and everything. So, can you just go through the whole thing?
1: Sure, and it is. It is, I think, the best. Case we had in our files. It took place in December nineteen eighty. So by the time I joined, it was already over ten years in the past. I later did a cold case review of it, but um, you know, it was my predecessor or one of my predecessors who did did the actual contemporaneous investigation. So the the story of Rendlesham, December nineteen eighty, over three consecutive nights. Um, early, the early hours of December 26th, then the 27th, then the 28th, there was activity. This took place at two military bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Now, they were U.S. Air Force bases on British soil, so they were part of the, the wider U.S. military presence in Europe. And um, on the first night of activity... And, and Bentwaters and Woodbridge are a couple of miles apart, and Rendlesham Forest lies between them.
0: And what part of the island are, are we
1: on? This, this is, I guess you would call it. I mean, the county was Suffolk. Got it. Can we pull
0: this up, Alessi? Just on a map. It's um, around.
1: yeah, it's it's um, I don't know, fifty somewhere between fifty and eighty miles northeast of London. Okay.
0: Got it. Close to the coast. I was going to say, it's going to be right up on the coast. So there's two mm-hmm. bases separated by the Randlesham By Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest.
1: Yeah. And uh, on the first night of activity, some security police and law enforcement personnel saw strange multicolored lights in the forest. And uh, their first thought was. Maybe a light aircraft has crashed. Um, Maybe there's a fire. We should kind of go out there immediately and investigate. Well, they found out that there wasn't an aircraft crash. Nothing like that had been reported. But they did find out that an uncorrelated target had been tracked on radar directly over the base, was there for a few sweeps, and then had disappeared. So, again, that was may be indicative that something had come down but but no aircraft had been reported um, missing or anything like that no no distress calls had been uh, sent in or 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 anything but nonetheless they thought well something's going on let's let's go out and investigate so uh, a, a number of different people went out there maybe about half a dozen but uh then their radios started malfunctioning. And these were line-of-sight radios, so sometimes it was just topography. But but this was kind of talking to the guys in later years. They said, you know, we, we know what our radios did and didn't do, and this was unusual. So they set up a radio relay, which, which was just pretty low-tech in a sense. It just meant, well, leave one guy back there, uh, then another guy another few hundred yards in. And if we can't re- relay a message back to base, we'll relay a message to the the last guy behind us and he can relay a message to the next guy. Because the, what I'm saying mm. is that the range of the radios seem to yes. have markedly dropped. So at the end of all this, three people kind of approached something and you know over 40 years on now if you talk to some of these guys they all they all have different recollections now over what exactly they saw and encountered um, one of them talks about it in terms of being a, a structured craft that had landed not crashed hmm one of them talks about it in terms of just being a really intense light um, a lot of these characters have had some fairly aggressive debriefings from their own chain of command both both being interrogated by Air Force Office of Special Investigations but also the use of regression hypnosis and regression hypnosis Yeah what is that uh, where you hypnotize someone take them back to the incident and say now give us your recollections because sometimes the feeling is the conscious memory has lost something or blocks something wow. there might be something in the subconscious it's very controversial because some people say no no it can it can actually create false memories but it was a technique that that was and maybe still is used from time to time um, as I say there are mixed opinions on its its value but also um, drugs were used uh, sodium pentathol uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, sort of truth serums. And again, it wasn't clear, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, by yeah, the way. Yeah, this but, is wild. But it wasn't clear whether some of the witnesses were being given all this to deliberately jumble their memories of this, to maybe hide the reality of what they'd mm. encountered, or maybe the chain of command really wanted to know and thought there's more details here, than these people have consciously recalled. So that's one of many, many controversial areas of this case.
0: How big were they initially reporting they thought the craft was, approximately?
1: Well, Jim Penniston, who was, I I think, a sergeant or a staff sergeant at the time, he is the one that talks most definitively about this in terms of it being a structured craft. He estimates maybe about, nine feet across at the base, kind of triangular in shape, almost like a a lunar landing module, so sort of tapering, moving upwards, maybe nine feet tall, but, and this is the really surreal and bizarre thing, with strange symbols, almost like hieroglyphic symbols on the side of this thing. They could see that? He talks about that. I, I'm how not... far
0: away is this craft?
1: Jim? Jim's testimony is that he went right up to it and touched it. And, oh, shit. and he said when he touched it, he got a kind of almost like a mental shock or something, and something changed in the feel and the brightness of the craft. And he immediately thought, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and he's like. He, he, one of Jim's specialisms was aircraft recognition. He was one of these people that could see a silhouette on a flashcard, or and, and immediately go, "That's a, a Mig twenty nine, or that's an F sixteen, or that." And he's like, "This is this is not an aircraft. This is like not, you know, it's like a lunar landing module or something, but it isn't."
0: You didn't see any creatures or anything. No. So there, it wasn't of the. There third are kind.
1: stories about that, but. But, you know, the the witnesses who talk about that, they, so far as I can tell, are just wannabes who've written themselves into the story over the years. The people who are actually verifiably there, and when I say verifiably, because we have their after-action reports, right. you know, as part of the U.S. Air Force files, for example. So we know who was there and who wasn't. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't take – reports of entities seriously how
0: long because you said you were looking basically through the cold case of it at that point yeah was this at the time was this a very public known disclosure in a way of an investigation or was this private and came out later
1: people knew the incident had happened because the story actually made the front page of a a British tabloid newspaper in Mm. 1983 Few years later, yes, but again, remember that this is this is before the internet and the old saying: uh, today's today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. Or right, it's a British saying, but um, I've heard yeah, that one before. Yeah, so so yes, there was some knowledge that this incident had taken place. There'd been this newspaper story, some follow up stories, a couple of books written about it but a lot of the information was pretty wide of the mark. And, and so Jim Peniston talked about touching the side of this thing, getting almost a, i hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to use it, telepathic download. Mm. Because this takes us into, and again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it takes us into one of the most controversial aspects of this story, which is the so-called binary code message that subsequently came out. The zeros and ones. The zeros and ones.
0: Can you explain that? This is wild.
1: Years after all this. Years. (laughs) Years. um, In about 2010, Jim Panniston was taking part in a TV program that was recreating this incident. And he had his original police notebook there in which he had sketched the symbols that he'd seen on the side of the craft. Because he his testimony is that he'd taken photos, but after he shot off the whole roll of film, he thought as a fallback, he would go, go back to, to old fashioned methods and start making some sketches and notes. Good job he did because the base processing laboratory later told him those photos didn't take out, didn't come out
0: properly. Mm, now, that's convenient.
1: Yeah. One theory is that that's true and that that is a byproduct of um, radiation at the site. And I want to come on to radiation later because it's the single most important piece of physical evidence that we have. I, I'm, so far I've talked about eyewitness testimony, but I'm going to come on to talk about physical okay. uh, physical evidence. Um, but it may be that it was a cover story and that the actual pictures of this craft exist in, in a file in a basement office somewhere in the intelligence community. I don't know. I don't know that. So... Guys, if you'd like to check out Nick's book on Rendlesham, Encounter
0: in Rendlesham Forest, you can do so by hitting the link to our Amazon store below. You will find his book right there, along with a bunch of other books and films of guests that have been on the podcast that is now live, so check out that link in the description. Also, if you haven't checked them out already, our Discord and Patreon links are in the description. We are starting to do AMAs on Discord, and we are also now releasing a new show called The Julian and Alessi Show with my producer Alessi Alaman. On Patreon, along with some other exclusive content from episodes that we have been putting out on YouTube that are not seen on YouTube.
1: So anyway, Jim Jim was leafing through the scat the, the the notebook where he'd written things like speed impossible because this thing was on the ground for I don't know ten fifteen minutes. Then it and this was a small clearing in the forest where apparently it had smashed some branches to come come in through the canopy. And then uh, it took off vertically very slowly, cleared the the treetops, and then shot away at high speed. Jim now he had it touched it. After he'd touched it. After he'd
0: so touched it. So nothing happened when he touched it. Uh,
1: well, it, other it, than his own effect. His his own effect. No, nothing happened. Well, no, the, I, I think it did change in brightness. But I'm doing this from memory in a okay. it's, it's situation where I haven't looked at his testimony for, for some time. I can't remember whether he described the hull as being hot, cold, or neutral to the touch. I can't remember whether he said that that changed when he touched it or not. And I can't recall whether, although I think he said some something changed physically as, as well as getting this. But I, I can't swear to it. Okay. okay. So, you know, I don't want to guess it. Um so yeah. Any, anyway, it it shot off at high speed. He wrote in his book, "Speed Impossible," and how did it, did it rise up like anti gravity? And then... well, you know, I, I don't want to say anti gravity because uh, we we have vertical takeoff sure, and landing sure. technology. It could could just be like a, a Harrier jump jet, except there was no sound. No so, sound. So that is interesting because normally, where you have these these. Vertical takeoff, and there's a huge oh, yeah. sound, a roar of the engines. So, again, indicative possibly of an exotic, radically different propulsion system.
0: And you said there were three verifiable witnesses, though. There was what's this guy's name again? Uh,
1: this guy is Jim Peniston. Jim Peniston, and, and then
0: there were two others.
1: John Burroughs, who was a little further back, and talks about this in terms of intense light that he couldn't see past. So he didn't see the craft. Um, and then Ed Kavanisak, who was even further back and was so spooked by some of this that he's, he's only ever gone on the record a couple of times very briefly. So we don't have much testimony from him at all. Um, afterwards, a lot of them were told to write statements he did later say cavanasack said look i yeah i i didn't even read my statement they typed something up put it in front oh. of me i signed it i just he said i just wanted to get out of there that's interesting anyway so the the story of this binary code is that um jim penniston for this tv interview was was going to talk about the symbols and somebody just walking past him and looking over his shoulder before the interview said, what's that? And there were like 16 pages of ones and zeros and Jim looked a bit embarrassed and said, oh, that's, that's I, I don't really know. And they had to kind of tease the story out of him and the story was that he got this kind of download when he touched the side of the thing and that two or three days later at home, he got a sudden compulsion to get out this book, and he just wrote 16 pages of ones and zeros, was then almost too embarrassed about it and or forgot about it and didn't say anything for another few decades. Yeah, Yeah. And bear in mind- Was it
0: translatable in any way? Yes,
1: it was. Although, I I, I want to come on to that. I I just want to make one other point about Jim. Jim stayed in the service. So- it, it kind of became okay to talk a little bit about the UFO because I'll, as I'll go on to say, I've only talked so far about the first of three nights of activities. activity. On one of the, the later nights, the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, himself became a witness and kind of got dragged into the public domain on this. So Jim was kind of okay with talking about it because it's like, hey, well, my, my colonel, he, he saw it, too, on a different night, mm-hmm. not landed, but, but look, if, if the deputy base commander saw it and as talking about it, it's kind of okay for me to talk about that. But he knew it was not going to be okay to talk about telepathic downloads, so he just either kept quiet or blocked it or both.
0: So he thought, that's interesting, though, because the whole thing, especially back then, would have sounded preposterous to anyone, yeah. but he was still separating out, like, well, that I can talk about, but this I can't. Yeah. he still put a, a grade you, on it.
1: You can talk about the UFO because you've got that top cover from from, from Colonel Holt. Fair, okay. But ones and zeros? No, it sounded crazy then. Arguably, it sounds crazy now. Sure. It does have apparently a translation. The TV production company found a, a computer engineer, computer scientist who who did the the sort of whatever that code. Is the, the what is it the A-S-C-I, whatever it is? But anyway, binary to, to basically to normal language, and apparently, and I'm doing this from memory, so I may I may get it's this. You pull it up, Yeah, it's 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 out there on the net, but apparently, it translates to continuous exploration for planetary advance, eyes of our eyes, origin year. 8,100, and there then follow a series of latitudinal and longitudinal coordinates. Wait a second. Yeah, I know. Is this like a future human implication? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Those latitudinal and longitudinal coordinates apparently correlate with some of the most mysterious sacred sites on the face of the planet, including the Great Pyramid at Giza, <laughs> Sedona, the Nazca Lines, um, and, and so forth. And wow. a mysterious lost continent from Celtic legend called High Brazil. It's, it's bizarre. Myself, if this is genuine... I think it's kind of too good to be true because it's like a – almost like a buzzword bingo of of your new age bucket list. Yes, it is. If this is real as opposed to something that that Jim – and I I don't mean made up, but –
0: Well, I don't like that a TV production company is the one who
1: like oversaw this and brought in the computer guy. That – well, they didn't know. I I do enough TV to know that that normally they don't like surprises, so they kind of had to scramble around for this, and and and, and this was all a bit last minute. So I don't, th- and and they weren't they weren't so so much pulling the strings. They were just like, is this something or is this nothing?
0: Do we did they show his full zeros and ones code? Oh yes, like, yes. Is that public yeah. info yeah. now? So we can yes. pull that up. Yes. So technically. The expertise of, of among the public of people who do translations like this could check that work.
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean nowadays That's it's much easier. I mean there are literally if yes. if you manually now put those ones and zeros in the correct order, there are sites that will translate binary to to English and, and vice versa. And it translates like to like a like a sort of Google Translate or Bing Translate. There's a equivalent for binary. So I don't think there's much dispute that that's what it translates as. Wow. But my point is this is too good to be true. And if this is a message from, you know, ostensibly, I guess, because it says origin year 8100, the implication would be time travelers from the future. Multiverse. With, yeah. Yeah. uh, But I don't know. Grandfather paradox a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, it could be things. a lot of
0: things, yes.
1: I think if this is real, that this is just a, like an attention getter and that the real message somehow is hidden deeper. And what do you mean by that? Well, it gets our attention because everyone goes, "Oh, great pyramids, yeah. Sedona. Sexy. But, but if there's a real and important message from the future, or or maybe not from the future, maybe from extraterrestrials. Maybe it's hidden somewhere else in the message. Now, look, I'm not a cryptographer, but I do know that there are, I don't know, ways of almost like presenting a solution that looks like a solution, but really it isn't. The the real answer is much deeper in. Maybe I'm not describing that very well. No, that's perfect. I understand
0: exactly what you mean.
1: Right. You'd need to talk to a, a cryptographer about this or, you know, a symbologist or both or a mathematician. A- anyway, look, it's it's one of the most controversial aspects of the case. But if 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 you take it out of the case, you've still got a case. I, I mean, I mentioned the physical evidence. That's a big part of it. Now, I
0: don't know what you're allowed to talk about and what you're not. So if I bring up things that you can't talk about, just say
1: you can't oh, yeah, and then we'll move and, on. But Absolutely. I mean, I, there, any public interview I do can only be at a an unclassified level, sure. otherwise I'll be breaking the law.
0: Sure. So basic question Did the You said you looked at like the cold case file of it, which means you're still looking at it. Right. You,
1: I, I did the cold case review. So I had the original 1980 file.
0: So did they have a conclusion on there? No, they did not. They didn't.
1: No. It was it was unprecedented. So I use an analogy about UFO sightings, which I think is quite helpful that I say to myself, I I say it's kind of like a crime file. Um, Cops will investigate all the crimes and hopefully they will have a good solving rate and those cases can then be closed. Any case where a cop opens an investigation but doesn't actually solve the case... Technically, even if there comes a a time when you stop putting resources on it because you've just done everything that you can do, you've interviewed all the witnesses, you've done all the the forensics you can do, technically, that case is still an open case because Mm. it's unsolved. I mean, to give an extreme example, the Jack the Ripper murders are technically an open case. Now, we know as a degree of... Intellectual certainty that the perpetrator is dead, of course, because the murders were committed in 1888. So, so clearly, a
0: real old son of a bitch if he's yeah. still
1: alive. So, <laughs> so yeah, nobody is obviously going to try and investigate that case with a view of, of bringing anyone to justice because it's sure. too late. They may, however, as a matter of historical interest and curiosity, occasionally pull out that file and do something with it. So, so UFO investigations are very much like police investigations. Sure. At the end of the day, you solve most of them. And I, I mentioned we got two or 300 cases each year. And I do my investigations. Oh, I, okay. I, I misunderstood you I'm, for a second. Keep going. No. Yeah. So I, yeah. I interview the witness. I analyze any photos or videos that we have. I cross-reference with flight paths, with weather balloon launches, with astronomical data. And each of my cases at the end, it's like th- this was almost certainly uh, a military exercise where, sure. pirate, where flares were dropped. But not for this one. Not for this one. So an unsolved UFO case is like an unsolved crime case. It sits there kind of, even if it gathers dust, but technically unsolved open case. Rendlesham was an unsolved case.
0: All right, so I'm going to cover your camera real fast, and I want you to blink twice (laughs) if you actually do know what happened.
1: Uh, I'm not playing that game, but no, honestly, hand on heart. (laughs) He's got a good poker face. Uh, Hand on heart. We, We... we did not have a definitive explanation. What we need – the way I tell it is this. I can tell you what it wasn't, but I can't tell you what it was. All right, well, let's do I, I mean not can't, you know, as in I, I know understand. and don't I, – yeah. I literally do not know and I'm not convinced that anyone does um, have an explanation. But look, we went through very carefully all the possibilities. Was this – could this be some sort of elaborate practical joke that got out of hand? I mean, I mean there is a culture of practical jokes in the military. would be a hell
0: of a practical joke. It would joke. be.
1: But a couple of people have retrospectively claimed that they played that practical joke. I think they are either mistaken or they're just outright lying. And yeah, the, having, you know, a, having yeah. some
0: sort of drone-ish technology oh, and yeah. that size of a craft well, in 1980,
1: come on. Sure. Yeah, there's a couple of – there's one guy who says that he drove his police car into the forest and then put the lights on without the siren. Well, that kind of doesn't really make any sense. And there's no evidence that even happened. The guy may simply be trying to write himself into the story even if it did happen. There's no evidence that it 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 kind of played any role in this. There's another guy who said that they had, one of the things that they had at the base was they, they had a, a unit called the, uh, I can't remember what it, it was, but if one of the Apollo capsules came down in an unanticipated area, like obviously for a, an Apollo mission you have your splashdowns, um, in designated areas, but sometimes things can go wrong. And what if it slashes down in another part of the world? You have to have a unit that would be able to go at immediate notice and fish them out. So there was a unit there that had a dummy Apollo capsule. So one of the theories was, could that have been? I, I know it's noiseless, it's kind of, though. I know, I know. That's that's why this doesn't make sense. That's why it doesn't make sense. Mm. So. So, but somebody said, is it possible that this could have been lowered under a helicopter, dropped in the clearing? Again, it's. With
0: the the invisible strands. I know.
1: It it doesn't make sense. But in a thorough investigation, you have to, if somebody says, we did this prank, you know, even if it's years afterwards, you have to say, yeah, you got to look at it. Is that possible? Yes. Could it be? Yeah, you um, have to look into it. Yeah, sure. and there's another theory that uh, that British Special Forces played a a prank on their American colleagues and snuck into the the facility, and I, I yeah, it's it's all friend of a friend stuff when it's it comes messy. to this. But you have to you have to consider it. So we we looked at all that and eliminated it we looked at all the look i mean again as i say 90 percent of all of this is going to be aircraft lights weather balloons meteors satellites
0: How, how many cases would you say ballpark you had to review and at least look into before crossing it off the list or maybe not over your three four years there
1: um thousands i i would say I don't know the number of cases that came in that I investigated was was probably less than that, probably seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, something Still like that. But obviously, from time to time, I would dip into the archives to because one of the big things that you tried to do was do some trend analysis. I mean, as I say, I did this job ninety-one to ninety-four. We'd had sightings going back to the to the Second World War. Yeah. We'd had a formally constituted program from 1953 onwards. We had a lot of files. I mean, one of the reasons I can talk about this, uh, and my security oath, my secrecy oath binds me for life, But so I, I can only talk about things that are unclassified and in the public domain. But one of the reasons that I am able to talk about this is the British government has declassified and released a, a, a lot of this material. And just to give you an idea, and, and they, by the way, I'd taken early retirement when they released this, but they asked me to come back and help publicize the campaign. Uh, so so because it was a good, good way to show our commitment to- When open, was that? That was um, the program to declassify. The first batch of files was declassified and released in May 2008. I recorded a video for it somewhere at the National Archives.
0: Oh, uh, and you had gotten so out in 06.
1: I'd got out in 06. But the point is that that program, which was originally supposed to take three years, two to three years, ended up taking 11 years because uh, all sorts of other things kept getting in the way. We, we declassified and released, or, or sometimes didn't declassify because it was unclassified, but you still have to redact, for example, the names and addresses and personal data sure. of witnesses for data protection. Um, we, we've released about 60,000 pages of, of UAP-related documentation. So there's a lot.
0: And how much of it comes to a conclusion and says, oh, it was this, or oh, it was most likely that, versus how much of it is the open-ended stuff, like we can't explain this?
1: Well, most of it comes to a definitive conclusion. Or if it doesn't actually say so in black and white, it is obvious from, from the documents what it is. I mean to give an extreme example: um, bright white light with green and red flashing lights either side, seen close to Heathrow Airport. I mean, literally, you, yeah. you would. Yeah. So, some of it is is blindingly obvious. <laughs> so, so, so that that was that. But before I lose my thread, let me get Please. just get back to the Rendlesham yeah. story. Um, I'll do the second and third nights quite quickly. Uh, well, we got all day. Take oh, your time. Well, no, we haven't. <laughs> 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 hey, tonight they're tr- turning on the lights at the Bryant Park Christmas tree. Oh, they are. So, That's yeah, right. yeah. We got to get g- to that. Yeah, got to get to what that. What time is that at? I think it's six. Okay, but <laughs> we'll, we'll have you there. Don't worry. Um, yeah, um, but so anyway, and um, yeah, but, and and. Maybe there's some hot mulled wine. Oh, so, yeah. Good yeah. stuff. I mean, the Christmas market, right? That's it. That's so,
0: every word is like, it's got such a pizzazz to it in
1: British. It's great. Anyway, <laughs> back to Rendlesham. So the second night of activity, uh, we don't know much about it because these people did not submit formal incident reports really because it turned into a bit of a scandal um, Apparently, some military personnel – and I can't remember whether it was Bentwaters or Woodbridge, but they were driving a Jeep and a ball of light kind of went through the, the cab and there were two witnesses, mm. the, the driver and the front seat passenger. And I can't remember whether their testimony was that the windows were open. I rather think not because this is December, UK. It was freezing cold. I think the testimony is almost like some of these weird ball lightning cases that this ball of light sort of physically somehow went through the closed glass window on one side and then out on the other. And apparently one of the witnesses was so traumatized by this that they had a kind of almost breakdown and had to be returned to the United States to their parent unit. I'm less authoritative on that because I have not spoken to the individual concerned. I've only had this story, albeit from two or three people who were there, but I've only had that second hand. So it's fascinating it is,
0: it's fascinating the especially with like the biggest story as you say in the UK, that there is, at least on the ground, US involvement.
1: Yes. It's it's always there.
0: Yeah.
1: So the third night Things get quite interesting. There is an award ceremony in in the social club, one of these kind of Christmas end of year events. And all the, the senior officers are present. And then the door opens and a flustered junior officer comes up to the senior commanders and salutes and says, sir, it's back. And and they all, like, what, what, what are you talking about? The guy says, the UFO has returned. <laughs> so there is a discussion. Obviously, people, the senior commanders had been briefed that something had happened. And they were still investigating. No one knew exactly what. Or if they did, they weren't saying. So the senior officers, the two senior officers present, or I think the three, kind of batted it around between them and like, okay, who's going who's gonna to deal with this? And the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, he said, I'll, I'll do it. And he threw together a team of about half a dozen people and, and sort of went out. They didn't, they didn't see anything straight away. So what they decided to do was they were like, well, g- let's go to the location where this thing apparently landed on the first night. And they went to the site, and I, I kind of skipped over this when talking about the first night, but it kind of wraps up with the third night, so it doesn't matter.
0: You had said that there was – I just remember this though. You had said that there was conflicting – reports from an eyewitness over time as to whether or not it crashed or landed well
1: i I don't think anyone said it crashed okay but there was there there were conflicting reports over whether it was a structured craft or just a very very bright light that that, that the other witness couldn't see what was emitting that light so um they went to this clearing and uh, they already knew this but but there were the physical traces that branches had been smashed off the trees. Um, the Fairly small clearing. Branches smashed off the trees apparently by this object as it had first come down and perhaps as it had taken off again. Did vertically. it
0: look – I don't know if you'll know this detail offhand, but did it look like it had almost incinerated what was in its trail or like it had a rough landing and – you know, there's a bumpiness to the to where the branches used to be and stuff like that, if that makes sense. Uh,
1: there were burn marks and scorch marks on the sides of some of the trees. Mm. And there were three indentations in the ground, ro- ro- broadly speaking, in the shape of a triangle. And bear in mind, this is December um, UK. It was freezing cold. The ground was... was fairly frozen, Colonel Holt has estimated that the object must have weighed several tons to have caused the indentations that it did. And at one point, I think a couple of the witnesses, both Colonel Holt and Jim Peniston, literally poured plaster of Paris into one of the holes, or maybe more than one, To get a mold Mm. of what the the strut, or whatever you call it, the landing leg, whatever terminology, uh, to what it looked like. It was was not particularly scientific.
0: But still, do we have that mold?
1: Yeah, we have that mold somewhere. Um, Like Britain has it, or? You know what? I want to say that I think Colonel Holt still has it. Oh, he kept it. He kept it. Because... When he left...
0: Can we pull up Colonel Holt, if you don't
1: mind? Yeah. Um, and maybe Jim has one, too. You know, these people are quite sneaky at, at like taking things which you yeah, would I'll think say. would be in the official case file. Yeah. But this, this was more kind of personal memorabilia. Um, one time, I, I forget whether it was Chuck or Jim. One of them was telling me that one time he took it somewhere and TSA uh, kind of... Like what oh, the MSA heck is this? Him. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah, it's like guy, what the heck is this? This guy's still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, shit. I think he's about eighty. Yeah,
0: he's, now. he's on his way out. Um, but maybe but he's a friend of
1: mine, and uh, oh, you know him. Still. Yeah, yeah. You think he'd come in and do a podcast about this? I don't know if he'd come in. Uh, he's based. Where is he based? Um, you know, I do know, but I've kind of forgotten. All right. um, we'll talk about it off air. Yeah. Um I think by a spooky coincidence at one time he moved to Woodbridge in Virginia and the name, of course, of one of the two bases was Woodbridge. <laughs> was was you yeah, know, is it just one of those spooky it's a little perfect, I don't know. Coincidences, or is it something I, I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway. Fine. So Colonel Hall, he goes out to the landing site, but one of the people that he takes with him is a guy called Monroe Neville's and Munro Nevels is the disaster preparedness officer, and he has with him a Geiger counter. Mm. And of course, this is where I say, look. Thus far, we've talked quite a bit about, you know, eyewitness testimony from from military personnel some quite senior. But it yes. it, it is just testimony. Here we're segueing into to physical uh, evidence stuff because Munro Nevels takes. Uh, he he surveys the area with the Geiger counter and he finds peak readings right in those three indentations not dangerous enough that he calls a halt and says hey back off but but enough of a spike reading to be like whoa you know something something happened here what the heck uh, and that's written into colonel Holt's initial incident report sent to the British Ministry of Defense. So because at some stage after this, of course, the the base commander, the wing commander says, hey, you've got to tell the Brits about this.
0: Yeah, so how long after was that? That's my next question. <laughs> a little
1: bit too long.
0: Um, like a day? Oh, no,
1: no, like uh, about 10 days.
0: That's sketchy.
1: It's, it's a long complicated, bureaucratic saga. You guys had to be pissed about that. We were a little, yeah. You know, a UFO (laughs) investigation, a UFO investigation is like a police investigation. As I said before, the first 48 is critical. To get a written report from the U.S. Air Force saying that there's been a a landing. (laughs) Oh, but by the way, it was like two weeks ago now.
0: Yeah. That's not great.
1: We were not. I say we, of course. You know, I was only doing the cold case review, so I was not the contemporaneous. Someone got chewed Somebody out. Somebody was, one. you know. Well, I don't know if they did, but um, if you if you know how to read a very polite British sarcasm, <laughs> some of the documents in the now declassified file reveal a degree of irritation with the mm. U.S. authorities for the delay and for the lack of information sharing. So for example, um, this object was briefly tracked on radar, um, you know, and there's there's a sarcastic comment along the lines of perhaps the Americans would care to share this information with us, <laughs> you know. It's, I I won't have time to get into this and it's a level of detail too far, but that the status of forces agreement governs is the overarching the NATO state, status of forces agreement is the overarching policy document that that kind of sets out the framework for how all this works in terms of US bases on British soil and you can you can have all sorts of esoteric things like what if an american serviceman shoots an american serviceman on the american base mm. who investigates what if an american shoots a brit what if it happens off the base in the forest and there are all sorts of kind of permutations of this who has jurisdiction who has primacy anyone can have jurisdiction jurisdiction can be concurrent but only one person has primacy self evidently so what's the difference uh, jurisdiction is the legal authority to investigate something. Primacy is who has the lead for it. Ah, uh, okay. So it gets weird. It gets weird, and to be honest, confusion about that is one of the things that led to the delay and the poor information sharing on this case. But the sixty-four thousand dollar question is is about this this level of radioactivity.
0: I feel like it's worth a little more than that. But, it's you know, well, and, add a few zeros, maybe.
1: When I did the cold case review, I was told that, well, this is actually spooky. My goodness. you know, This is like an, a Russian doll or on one, an onion. Every layer you peel. This is why. you say a Russian doll and an onion? A Russian doll or an onion or where an you on, peel okay, the different it, layers. It. This is why, even though we're covering this as part of an interview on the whole shebang, um, it's a good word. The, this is why I've written a 100,000-word book about this case alone. Which book was that? Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, God. which I co-authored with Jim Penniston and John Burrows, two of the, the U.S. Air Force We witnesses. will put
0: that link in the description so people can okay. go check it
1: out. Um, I didn't mean to come on and do a book plug, but it's, no, it's I'm, I'm just trying to tell you how much information there is about this that just one of these cases I could write a 100,000-word a book on.
0: And be able to do it with, without revealing classified information.
1: Yes. I had to submit the, the manuscript of that book both to the UK Ministry of Defense and to the Pentagon, so uh, to DOPSA. To the what is it called? Defence Office of Prepublication and Security Review. So you had to do both. I had That's to do both. Again, because this was no people like Lou Elizondo, uh, who who you know, has his book coming out. At least he only has to do it in one, one. country. Yeah. I had to do it in both because this was um, on British soil, but involved U.S. military personnel and U.S. military bases. So I had to go to both the Ministry of Defence and to DOPSA. Wow. Uh, Anyway, the the radioactivity levels turned out to be 6.66, okay, on to infinity, 666, times um, higher than average background, which... For those, those future that,
0: humans playing some games with well, us. Well, future humans pretending to be
1: demons yeah. by going with the whole 666 thing. Right. Uh, and, of course, there are people who think that some aspects of the UFO phenomenon are demonic. I've come across that. Lou Elizondo has come across yep. it. I remember him saying one time when he was trying to get his skeptical Pentagon bosses, yes. he, They one of them said to him, son, go read your Bible. Yeah. And, of course... A lot of those people with that mindset get that from the book of Ephesians where they describe Satan in terms of being, quote, the prince of the power of the air, unquote. Mm. And that's one of a number of reasons why some people think that this is demonic or aspects of it are. And therefore they say you shouldn't study it because studying it feeds it and gives it energy, which you shouldn't do. God, it gets so and weird. It does. Yeah, I've, I've done – there's been two
0: podcasts that have covered this. I had Ron James in here for episode 151. <laughs> So one thing that Lou Elizondo told me and that he's told this to other people and he said it in the show Unidentified, one of the biggest things, surprisingly, that he ran into with opposition within the Pentagon, within the Defense Department to the work that he was doing is that there was a very large contingent of people that believed that this was a demonic force, as in demons, and that we shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be investigating it. We shouldn't be poking the tiger in the eye. They thought the phenomenon that was being witnessed was demons? Yes, within the military establishment. Within the Pentagon, within DOD, there was a large number of people that opposed his work because they thought from a very, very fundamentalist viewpoint that were dealing with demonic activity. And he was talking about, like, he spent a lot of the last six, seven years really studying Lou Elizondo, sitting down with him for a very long interview, kind of got him to say a couple of things that I'm sure Lou didn't really like saying. And Lou had told him all about that and how there was there was like a, a piece of the Pentagon that was hell-bent on that's what it is. Hell-bent. Very and, good. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even mean to do that, but that was pretty good. But then I had another guy in who comes at it from like a very different angle, this guy, Dr. Hugh Ross. <laughs>
2: And so I was able to explain about 99% of what people thought was a UFO, but there was 1% that didn't fall into the category of a natural explanation, secret military activity, or a hoax. Can you explain that 1%? They clearly violate the laws of physics. They're observed going through the atmosphere at thousands of miles per hour, yet there's no sonic boom. There's no heat friction trail behind the, quote, craft. And there's 2,000 cases where they're documented as a crashing into the earth. You go to the crash site, you see a shallow crater. If there's snow, the snow is melted. If there's vegetation, the vegetation is damaged. But when you observe go around the crater site, there's no artifacts, there's no debris. It's like when an airplane crashes into the earth, there's lots of debris to recover. With a UFO, there's nothing. But the fact that you've got a crater... Something real must have done that.
0: Who's like, he's one of those guys, extremely nice guy, smart physicist, the whole bit. But I think like his religion is kind of, his science is built to kind of fill his religion. That was just my takeaway. But he does talk about the angelic versus demonic end of this and how his argument kind of hinges on one thing it seems like and that is because we don't have physical evidence that these things were here like they don't leave behind physical evidence that therefore it must be demonic what would go against that argument there would be some of the eyewitness stuff though that you're speaking of in this case at Rendlesham as one example being there was a craft it was it had hieroglyphics on it whatever it was touched by the person. But again, allegedly, because it's not like he chipped off a piece and kept it.
1: Well, it is kind of scary, I guess, that, that the argument for some of this being demonic is that it doesn't seem physically tangible. And yet this one case where it was, we ended up with 6.6. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that that's Bizarre. kind of and, – and again, does that tie in demons are notorious tricksters? Um, almost every culture in human history has – A trickster god. You know, again... A joker. It is the cosmic joker in in this context. But it's funny. It's ironic, I think, that sometimes the roadblock to serious scientific research into UAP within government isn't a hard-nosed, skeptical faction who think it's all nonsense, but is a faction who think it's very real but demonic. That's one of the ironies. And so they're
0: afraid. Of it's it's ironic to me that then they're afraid. Like that argument's kind of bullshit to me. Like, oh, well, we don't want to study it because we're giving it energy or whatever. Wouldn't you want? That's like saying, oh, we don't want to solve this murder case because we're giving the murder energy. Like that's yeah, that's worse.
1: No, no, thine enemy, but yeah. but I don't know. These pro- people are probably biblical scholars or think they are. And they've probably delved into it in more detail and a lot of them probably aren't. They're yeah. probably just like religious <laughs> and
0: they think they're biblical scholars.
1: Yes. That's a very good point. I think that's that's behind a lot of the the mis I, I, I don't know, missteps yeah. that that we see here. But did you, just, you
0: encounter any of that? Yes in, I did. In yours? Yes, absolutely. Because you referred to it with Lou, I wasn't sure if you said it three years. No, as well. the reason
1: it resonated with me is that, and I had this discussion with Lou. Is it turned out we'd both come up against the same thing. There is, and and in the UK, we one of the people who was something of a champion for serious UAP research was a retired five star admiral, a former chief of the defence staff and chairman of NATO military committee called. Lord Hill Norton, he was an admiral of the, fl- of the fleet, five-star admiral. Um, he'd come up, he'd served on destroyers, I think, in the, the Second World War in some of the most difficult, dangerous theaters and dangerous theatres and stayed in, got to the very top, retired, then got interested in UFOs. You know, why Why couldn't he get interested when he was still in? Yeah, oh, there he yes, is. yes. You got him up on the screen. I, I okay. briefed him. On, on a few occasions and, oh, he's gone uh, he's uh yeah he uh he was a character and a half but uh, <laughs> he uh, he um was was getting interested in this, but he fell under the influence of of a maverick priest called paul Inglesby, mm. who was of the view that UFOs were demonic and I thought this was extremely unhelpful because just as we'd on somebody who who could, you know, o- open all the doors for us on this, he, he was in danger of being brought down this this kind of fundamentalist religious rabbit hole of, of demonology. Was that priest Catholic or Protestant? I think he was Protestant, but okay. you know what? Again, it's. I say, I, I don't think he was mainstream. He was one of these, maybe he was one of these small, I don't know, sects. I I, I don't know. I want to say he was Protestant, but I, I am not 100% on that.
0: that. Because when I hear stuff like that, that's where the tinfoil hat gets tingly a little bit, because you wonder if there's some sort of... I don't know historical narrative known to few that they're like oh other people can't know about this so we can't have them study this kind of stuff I I don't know how realistic that is because that requires a lot of gatekeepers I I would think but makes you makes you wonder it a little bit
1: yeah I I don't I don't really have an opinion on that but um to to Finish up on Rendlesham. Yeah. I'd say a couple of things. So, so Colonel Holt gets to the landing site. Um, they take the radioactive uh, radioactivity readings, and then they see the UFO themselves. Uh, not landed, but through the trees, then up in the sky. They see it move around erratically. Colonel Holt says that at one point, this thing fires a narrow beam of light down at the ground. Uh, shortly. In front of of him and his men, and reflecting on this in in later years, he's given a number of interviews where he said, you know was was this a weapon? was this a warning? was this communication? what was it mm. And he doesn't know, and he he chooses his words carefully on this. he has once or twice i think articulated the the word extraterrestrial, but generally speaking. What he has said is, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was under intelligent control. What does that mean? It it means there's a technology behind it. And he doesn't think it's ours because it seems in terms of speed, maneuver, acceleration, capability to, to be way beyond the cutting edge of anything that we have at the time. Okay. Same I, sort of thing David Fravor says about the TikTok. Okay. All right. I you was know, picturing that wrong for he a says, second. Well, but... he says, I don't know. Dave Fravor, of course, famously said, I don't know what it was, but I want to fly one. Yeah. So, and he says Colonel Holt talks about this object moving around rapidly in yeah. the sky uh, as if it's performing a grid search. So going back and forward. And then the very last thing that happens is it fires narrow beams of light down, not now at him, but back at the base. And subsequently, he was told some of the light beams penetrated the WSA, the weapons storage area, and may have had some sort of effect on the ordnance. On the what? The ordnance. The ordnance. The weapons. Oh, that's a term for weapons. That's a term for weapons. I like weapons better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Of course, this story is debated publicly, and people say, well, what kind of weapons are they? And there has been speculation about that. And some people have said, well, those were nuclear weapons, weren't they? Uh, Took the words out of my mouth. And my response to this, by law, has to be, As follows, I can neither confirm nor deny the presence of nuclear weapons at those bases. So there you are. Okay. But you'll find a lot of people, some of whom were there, being a little bit more forthright about that. And... There was a part of the weapon storage area which was nicknamed Hot Row, Hmm. and people can do their own research and draw their own conclusions. That's something I have to admit I've never looked at. Obviously,
0: we've heard through various geopolitical events over the years and just – an accounting of things about how, for example, the United States has military weapons, including nukes, that aren't necessarily stationed here. But I had never thought about if they would have it on like the UK's soil or something, like such a close, powerful ally. I guess it makes a ton of sense. But...
1: Well I I think some parts of this may not be classified. I, I don't think it is disputed that that during the cold war the uk had nuclear weapons in in europe i mean there were big uh, campaign for did. nuclear well there were big campaign for nuclear disarmament marches about um i believe uh, cruise missiles at greenham common now maybe we didn't even confirm then but but anyway look whatever i i can't remember the history of what was declared and what wasn't but when I last checked with the Ministry of Defence press office, with whom I'm in touch still from time to time, just to make sure. I, I generally know where the line is, but every now and then something will come up and I'll have to check it. And when I last said, look, a lot of people have said, can I comment on the allegation that there were nuclear weapons at the twin bases of Bentwaters and the Woodbridge and that that the light beams some witnesses testify that they interacted. And, and the press office said to me, no, you had better stick to the NCND, n- neither confirm nor deny line in relation to that. So, you know, maybe, maybe if I check today, it'll have changed. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's now a little bit of Cold War history that that we can talk about. But that's, I don't know that. So at the moment, I'm neither confirm nor deny. So that's basically the story of Rendlesham <clears throat> excuse me Rendlesham but I do want to fast forward to something that brings it bridges the gap between Rendlesham and what's going on in the US right now because mm. it's a very interesting segue I think um some of the Rendlesham witnesses have in recent years said that they have some health issues which they believe are attributable in some way to whatever it was they encountered in Rendlesham Forest. What kind of health issues? Uh, you know what? I think because of HIPAA, I, I'm not going to okay. go there. I think there are some things in the public domain, but because I'm not sure who said what, I, I think I'm I'm going to decline.
0: Yeah, see if you can Google to, that, Alessio, see if there's public information, but that's yeah. fine.
1: I'll, I'll um, for, for the moment, I'd, I'd rather err on the side of caution and, and not disclose people's per, personal medical dossiers, even if those people, it may turn out, have discussed some of this in public. But, but it. anyway, it's it's not necessarily critical to this story. I think what's critical to, to this part of the story is, is the fact that some of these people had been engaging with the VA about this to to try and get their medical records to get some sort of acknowledgement from from the military that this had happened and to see if they couldn't get more help and support with with dealing with some of this and mm-hmm. rightly or wrongly people had some of these people had convinced themselves that radioactivity at the landing site might be a part of this so a lot of these people were interacting with the VA and the VA were taking a very tough line on this and saying we're not we're not going to change policy or give help or you know because of a UFO story and and these people were look it's not really a UFO story it's it's or it is but it's Look, the chain of command knows about this, and it's in the files and and our senior officers, or at least one of them, saw and interacted with this um you know himself so this this was they were hitting some roadblocks, so they went to um, they went to their various congressional representatives they got a a lawyer involved called Pat fresconia who did hundreds of hours of pro bono work to to make Freedom of Information Act requests to, to try and take this forward. One of Senator John McCain's aides, I forget her name. Her first name is Cheryl. She did such a great job of working with at least one of the witnesses to try and move things forward. She was told... I think oh these medical records are classified and she's like what do you mean medical records are classified she handled hundreds of cases each each senator or or congressional representative will will have on their staff somebody does the immigration somebody does the the you know somebody does the the va stuff she did cheryl did did the va stuff she knew her way through the system backwards, and she's like, I've never seen anything like this before. People claiming this medical record is, is closed. Not sure they ever did get it. Anyway, then I dropped something into the conversation, and I know one of the witnesses is, is rather upset with me because he thinks I was sitting on this information and should have said something earlier. Um, maybe I did. Pardon me. Just, <laughs> um Maybe I should have said something earlier. I, I can't remember the timeline. But anyway, what I remembered was, was this, that all the time while these people were getting rebuffed by the VA and saying there's no evidence that this happened and there's no evidence that any of this could have caused any health issues, I remembered that there was a, a declassified United Kingdom intelligence assessment of not rendlesham but but uap as a whole i i, I was involved in setting it up but i mm. i had been posted by the time it it actually got going so i didn't write the thing but we felt that there should be a an intelligence assessment just as you do an intelligence assessment on say you know soviet uh, russian now long range bomber capability. Why don't we do an intelligence assessment of UAP? And we did. And I remembered just before I left, actually, just before I took early, super early retirement. um, So this is long after you're off that desk. Long after I'm off the desk. It's like
0: 05, 06.
1: Yeah, but it it was May 2006, I think. It may, you know what, it may have been May 2005, but no, I think it's Either 2006. Okay. We declassified, I say we, mm-hmm. um, I knew that it was coming, of course, um, declassified a final, the final report of this intelligence assessment, colloquially known as Project Condign, C-O-N-D-I-G-N, but the full title of the study was actually... Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon in the United Kingdom Air Defense Region. (laughs) Bit of a mouthful. But I got it. Yeah. Yeah. I remembered what was almost a throwaway line in the – that's the one. Project Condon. Okay. The – I remembered a throwaway line from – Buried deep, and this was like 468 pages long, but I remembered one line stood out to me very clearly, and, and it lodged in my brain when I first read it. I was like, this will come in handy, and it did. And the line – and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but it was words to the effect of the well-reported uh, Bentwaters incident – is a case where it might be postulated that witnesses were exposed to UAP radiation for longer than usual time periods. So I said, wait a minute. I said to Pat Frasconia, the lawyer, I said, look, this has been declassified. If the VA is saying we don't have any evidence this happened. There it is. Here's your evidence. And and this report was originally classified, I think, secret UKIs only. So very high level, only one below top secret. And I said, look, there's there's your smoking gun. There's There's what you need. Pat, of course, was on it in an instant. And he went back to the VA and he said, hey, look, here is... And and you can read it on the National Archives website, so it's not, or the Ministry of Defense website, uh, or both. So there's no dispute about the provenance of this document. This is an official intelligence assessment that the British government has itself now declassified. It's hosted on their website and acknowledged as being the real thing. And here it it, it has that phrase, well, the, the VA settled immediately. (laughs) <laughs> you, you, with at least one of the witnesses. I can't say who and I can't go into details about other cases, again because of HIPAA and and data protection and things. But it's i I I'm I guess I'm I'm trying to to say how there is a physical evidence behind this. They took the radiation readings, right. they recorded right, them in the documents yes. and they then we're able to to write this into the intelligence assessment and then present this to the VA.
0: So when I when I was saying physical, I should have been clearer about that. What I meant was kind of like Michukaku says, next time you see one, steal a pen, steal something, get a piece of aluminum. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like allegedly, but again, governments may have this stuff and we don't know about it, but the general public doesn't have anything verifiable right now that's physical in that way.
1: I never saw anything that i would characterize as a physical smoking gun so i unlike people like david grush well even david grush of course we can come on talk about this says he hasn't seen this personally but i let me just make this very clear i have never personally seen anything which i know or believe to have come from an extraterrestrial spacecraft or blink,
0: blink twice.
1: Blink um, <laughs> twice if you're lying. <laughs> no, no. I look, if I now blink blink twice naturally, people will be going, Oh, look. Um but no, I have never seen I've never seen a, a spaceship or a bit of one, and I've never seen an alien Damn live it. or dead. Sorry. Ugh, so. I really
0: thought this guy coming in today, I'm like, I, I was saying earlier somebody, I'm like, the guy coming in today might have been face to face. With an alien before, no. and he probably won't be able to tell me.
1: But you could be lying. Sadly, I, I could, could be. be. But sadly, I'm not. And, and and look, I would love it if I had seen that, but I haven't. I, okay. You know, obviously, I am now. I I suspect that if this is true, if we are being interacted with by either. Extraterrestrials, or let's let's use the wider term to encompass other theories, whether it's time travel, demons, whatever it may be. Let's let's use the the phrase non-human intelligences. Uh, I have never actually seen any of that.
0: Actually, actually in actually, person, in person. But maybe if it were on a
1: page that you read. No, I again nothing in. We, we have – and I've written and I've received from colleagues intelligence assessments that say things like here, – here's a direct quote from a defense intelligence staff, British DIS document. It says, we could use this technology if it exists. The point is we in the UK did not know whether or not it existed. My, if the Americans, if the U.S. government or elements therein know this is true, I am pretty confident because of my security clearance and my need to know at the time that they didn't brief it to us in the UK. That they had this on a a, a no foreign level, um, you know, not not for you know, no foreign nationals, not for distribution to foreign nationals. And, and I can understand that. Firstly, because the nation, if, if this is true, the nation that first figures out how to you know, use that technology... That's a huge advantage. Will be... Absolutely. But secondly, your allies may be your allies, but you know intellectually and from history that sometimes your allies are penetrated by foreign intelligence services. So everyone that you tell... You run the risk of it you run a greater risk of it getting back well i, I got an little,
0: i got a little theory about that that you could speak to much better than i could i would imagine because you at least operated within these worlds but i the more i've talked with people who are from that world you know come from intelligence or people who have reported on it the more i feel like underground when we're looking at pure espionage there are friendly encounters but there are no friends
1: Yes, I think that's a very accurate yeah. perception. And and of course, the question do you spy on your allies as well as your adversaries is always a very sensitive and difficult question that, that very the few people yes. you know, well, the answer that you get from government is we don't comment on intelligence matters. Right. Which which of course is a complete lie. They comment on intelligence matters all the time if it's intelligence matters they want to comment on to make a particular point, but but it's a, great, it's a great one-liner to hide behind when you need to pull it out.
0: Yes. Absolutely. I think you guys are going to be excited about this one, but if you'd like to have a mug like this, like the one that I put on every episode, we are going to start releasing some of the greatest hits for you guys to buy. All you have to do is hit the link in the description below to pre-order your mugs now and also know that there's some new merch that's going to be coming within a month or two we are designing all of it now very excited to share it with you so make sure you go pre-order that and also sign up for our newsletter which you can find in that same link alessi you were telling me you had just pulled up an article of one of the guys who was in the event in britain how do you how do you say it again rendlesham rendlesham i always want to say ramblesham all right, so this is one of the guys who was exposed to radiation, you're saying?
1: Yeah, this is a guy It says 2015,
0: it got made public here the U.S. government. They actually acknowledged the health issues from that UMP counter in 1980, and they granted him the rights. So this is mm-hmm. one I think you can be public about, John Burroughs. John Burroughs. Okay, got it. So that was yes. just confirming one of them.
1: Yes, and, and that was, uh, I mean, I, I name-checked some of the people involved with that. I wish I could recall Cheryl's... Um, uh, second name, because she did a lot of the heavy lifting. She worked in uh, John McCain's office. Right. I think Senator John Kyle was also involved at, at one point. Fra- Pat Fresconia, of course, the, the lawyer. Um, a lot of, lot of people did a, a lot of good work to, to try and help John Burroughs and some of the other witnesses. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as far as I know, some of this is maybe still going through the system.
0: Radioactive from a uAP is an interesting way to put it, though, yeah to have it like that because yeah. you know we do hear the term radioactive referring to nuclear weapons, and if and again, you couldn't confirm nor deny, but if there were nuclear weapons at the facility, perhaps this is out of context because maybe there are other people who had nothing to do with the sighting who were stationed there who also have health effects that could be as a result of the nukes and not necessarily this, which could poke a, a, a hole in that. But, as you said, in the declassified documents, yeah. they seem to be clear, it, or they tried to make it clear it was not
1: from nukes. It specifically uses the phrase UAP radiation. Right. I mean, UAP radiation stated in this highly classified intelligence assessment as if it is an absolute tangible thing that everyone knows about, UAP radiation. No, yeah, le- that's a thing.
0: Now, let me play devil's advocate there. Perhaps even... Even though this is far in the past, there's some sort of intelligence angle to try to cover up intel as to what could have been happening at those bases that they don't want foreign adversaries to know about. So they say, oh, it was this UAP as opposed to, oh, it was the whole nuke
1: system we got going on there. And absolutely, this this is always, to my mind, the most credible of the skeptical um, theories about a lot of this, that yes. we are dealing with… An intelligence operation, or call it maybe a counterintelligence right. operation, to promote a certain narrative—in this case, the UAP one—to hide another narrative, the reality of what's going on. And we we have some good h- historical examples of this. For yes. example, with the the U uh, two, spy plane, and the SR seventy one Blackbird. Yeah, and and we we know that on occasion, commercial. Airline pilots would see these things and and of course it suited the CIA and the US Air Force if those stories were then written up not as oh, a surprised pilot caught a glimpse of America's latest spy plane but a, a pilot seen a flying saucer. So y- there is historical precedent for the government sometimes if, – if not – well, yeah, I'll say actively promoting a UAP narrative to hide the reality of what it was, to throw an adversary off the trail. Now, I think what we're dealing with currently in in Congress and NASA and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and everything, I think it goes too far for that to be the explanation or – at least for it to be a definitive explanation for everything. Yeah, and
0: that's that's where it gets interesting. I was I was on the phone with Jesse Michaels who has I think the channel used to be known as American Alchemy, but now it's known as Jesse Michaels on YouTube. I was on the phone with him last night for a while and he he knew David Grouch, who's for people out there who haven't followed this, is the whistleblower who came forward this year in America. He knew David Groosh I think for a couple of years. Before that happened. And I was asking him about. Now again this is one guy's opinion here. But I was asking him about the angle. That possibly Grush is completely. Telling the truth. But that. The colonels on on the trail. Were kind of left there for him. Specifically to do that. As some sort of intel operation. And one of the arguments that Jesse made. That he made a lot more eloquently. Than I'm going to sum it up right now. Was that the number of the number of bases that would have to be covered for that to be the case is at a ridiculous amount. Like there's there is a there there's too much there for him to have totally been looking at fake stuff and not be not having the truthful outcome on at least something there.
1: Yes, I can say I mean I don't think it's definitive, because of course it's always possible that yeah, this is an incredibly complex and multifaceted deception operation. And he has himself been deceived. I think it's more likely there's, there's a variant of that theory where he's a willing participant in a an intelligence operation to yes. falsely promote this narrative yes. for some reason or the other. Uh, maybe to hide something else. But maybe, maybe there's another reason. I mean just to cover up the fact that it's a new spy plane seems to be going a little bit far. So maybe it's… Maybe it's something else, but I can't rule out the, the possibility that all of this is a deception operation, possibly with Grush himself as as a victim or one of the victims of that. But more likely, as you say, um, more likely perhaps because of the difficulties of, of, of that and the complexities, more likely if that's true, he's, he's a deliberate part of it and, and – you know, in in any of these situations he's obviously being being a patriot and um so and, and I know a, at least two people who know uh, Dave Grush quite well. I've I've not met him, but I know at least two people with with verifiable backgrounds in all this who who know him, you know well enough to to be on sort of friendly first name sure. terms you know not not now that he's out but before that when he was in the system and, and they say yeah he's absolutely the real deal did what he said he did you know absolutely he was he was part of the UAP task force um so
0: now he says though that he saw evidence and I, and I don't want to misremember some things so I don't want to go too far with this but he talks about that 33 crash in Italy and how there were craft recovered. He also then, in his testimony, went into how there the U.S. government is in possession of biological entities, not of this earth. I can't remember, though, if he said he had phys- he claimed to have physically seen it. I don't think so. He, it was just he, he may have seen pictures of it, though.
1: He said that he has interviewed about 40 people... In the – I don't know whether they're all in the intelligence community, but, you know, military, intelligence. uh, He's interviewed about 40 people, I believe, with apparently direct knowledge of some of these programs. And and these programs seem to split into two main categories, Uh, a legacy program looking at crash retrievals, and a legacy program looking at reverse engineering, presumably of mm. of the materials recovered. So I don't think I don't think Dave Grush claims to have seen any of this himself. But you know, I use an analogy th- about that, which is, might be quite helpful here. When I was working for the Ministry of Defence in headquarters building, one of the divisions was called something like D Nuke Paul Sigh, and <laughs> That was Directorate of Nuclear Policy and Security. Gotcha. These were the senior people in the Ministry of Defence with responsibility for nuclear issues. I'm—I never asked them, of course, but but my common sense and my knowledge of the system tells me few, if any, of those people have probably ever touched the side of a, a ballistic nuclear missile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's something the engineers do. I understand. And, yeah. you know, these are the policy people. So when Dave Grash says, well, I haven't, I haven't seen any of this myself, and people go, oh, you know, I say, so what? You know, he's a, he's a policy guy, an analyst, and I wouldn't expect him necessarily to have hands-on any more than I would expect those policy people in Ministry of Defence main building to have touched a bomb.
0: I'm not saying your argument's wrong. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. The devil's advocate there is we know nukes exist. We know bombs exist. This is, it's human made, right? So there might be a part like, ah, oh, yeah, scene one, scene one, nuke, seen them all, don't have to go down there and actually touch it or whatever. But I got to tell you, man, if I were on, in charge of an alien desk, you know, like some people
1: in this room, I'd want to go down there
0: and touch that fucking
1: thing. I would too. I would too. Oh, one time I, one time I played a great joke on a colleague. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm just doing this for color. Okay. but it illustrates that you're you're right that of course human nature is you'd want to know i think it was the not the next but the next but one job i had after the ufo job <laughs> i went into security and um we got talking one day about biometric security and i said oh yeah i said one time i went to the us and and, and i was completely making this up but i just thought i'd have have some fun with the moment because we There'd just been an advertisement published. This was the early 90s. This tech was really not in the public domain, but there was a a retinal identification security system advertised in a a sort of security industry trade magazine, and it was a great advert. I I remember remember it to this day. It said something like, I looked deeply into her eyes and she said, access denied. <laughs> and, and it was so it was all about these retinal scans, which were just coming in at the time. And I said to the guy, oh, there's nothing. I said, one time I said, I, w- I went to the Pentagon. I said, and they had the the wreckage of the Roswell crash down there. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, they gave me the retinal scan. They gave me the palm scan. They had the thing. And, you know, and I was like, all oh, that. And, and as I was leaving, the guy says, Nick, Nick, he says, I got to know, what does the craft look like? And, and of course, I was, just, I was just kind of having some fun with right, him. But, right. yeah, yeah, of course, you'd want to know. You'd want to get your hands on that craft in a way that you wouldn't say, hey, I want to touch a nuke. In fact, I would be definitely, I don't want to touch a nuke
0: for yeah, obvious reasons. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't want to go anywhere near them. Yeah, I know they exist. <laughs> I know some they're shielded. Like yeah. Uh, but, you know, even so, I don't want to... Why would I? But
0: there's also, like, is there a danger in touching a craft from a foreign universe or or, or galaxy? I'm well, sorry that you don't know what kind of tech it is. It could be way worse than a nuke, too.
1: That, yeah. That's a question. Which is why Jim Penniston, the moment he touched the side of the Rendlesham thing, had his kind of, oops, I shouldn't have done that mm. moment. And it's why, yeah, with the phrase UAP radiation being being put into to intelligence assessments. It tells you it's a thing. And it it says, yeah, I, I would be very cautious. And the other thing is, one of the few good, let's suppose we are dealing with extraterrestrials. One of the few good assumptions we could probably make is that to have viable interstellar travel, that's a technology orders of magnitude above anything we have. And it almost certainly involves the generation of very high, levels of energy almost anything that does that can be weaponized of course and so i don't want to be drilling into these things and hammering at them and taking them apart until i really am sure that i'm not going to rip apart the known universe (laughs) yeah well
0: look i heard you answer a question in this lane about that with it had to do with the balance of disclosure versus national security that governments deal with. It's like, of course, you have the question of, well, do our people have a right to know if we know about extraterrestrial intelligence? As a human being, the quick answer is yes. The second layer, to it, though, gets a little more complicated because if it involves the fact that you are in possession of – Weaponry not of this earth that's – not even weaponry, but technology not of this earth that could be harnessed to use as a weapon that's insane. When you are then telling the people, i.e. us in here, that out loud, you are also telling Russia. You're telling China. You're telling countries you may view as a threat. And so it gets to the point where as annoying as it is to hear just as a human who wants to know when we we hear the words like, for national security reasons, we can't say that. It's annoying… But there's a good argument there.
1: There is a good argument. But you know, I've made that point in in many interviews. But I'm now going to modify that point, Ooh, we get a or, or rather, I'm, I'm going to kind of build on it. Okay. Uh, and I'm asking this almost as a I don't I don't necessarily know the answer, but I'm, it, I think it's going to take us to an interesting place. Would it be possible to ring fence? That part of the conversation. In other words, could you say – let's just assume it's, it's the standard disclosure fantasy of the UFO community, which is the president saying, my fellow Americans, people of the world, we're not alone. Mm. You know, would it be possible to do that but to ring fence the tech and, and to say – I mean you know, I don't think it would be a giveaway to say that there's tech. It would be self-evident if we're making that first statement, would it be possible to ring fence it by saying, my fellow Americans, people of the world, we are not alone. We're being interacted with by an extraterrestrial civilization. Self-evidently, they have technology way ahead of anything we have, but we are going to release no details whatsoever of that technology because it would be helpful to an adversary and because it could be weaponized. I think the answer from a Purely almost intellectual philosophical point is yes, of course, you can always say I'm going to disclose A but not B even if it's part of the story. So the question then arises, is there something fundamentally either classified or dark side about A Mm. in and of itself that stops people saying – or the president saying, my fellow Americans, people of the world – we're not alone. Well, th- there's a couple things here.
0: The first thing is... If you are keeping A and not giving out B... But it, but you're acknowledging A, which then does probably acknowledge B... Okay, you don't give up details, but you kn- you now just created a blank check. Because so all you need is one. You need one person who answers to... Some other foreign adversary government who says what's well, going to take a billion dollars? Whatever you need to give us intelligence on this. You now create a target for that because let's say you only have 100 people read into this kind of thing. You just need one. You need one guy to be like, you know what? I'll take my boat to Thailand. We're good, right? I accept that's, that, yes. That's one argument. The other argument is the – I don't know what the term you'd use for this. I'm going to make one up. Like the collapse of meaning though. Because let's say that they possessed intelligence that could show definitively – let's take it a step farther. Let's say it could show definitively A, we're not alone because we are in contact or we are being contacted by a foreign civilization. But also B, we have therefore uncovered the fact that that civilization is responsible for basically our very short human history here on planet as we know it – on the planet as we know it with Earth which then could remove, perhaps debunk every organized religion in the world, which is where so many people get peace and meaning and beauty in life, right? So we we see religion used for bad things. That does happen, obviously. But there's most people who use it are using it for good purpose, to be a good person within themselves. And now suddenly you may have the quandary of, Holy shit, it all doesn't mean anything, so what's the point of all this morality or, or everything we're doing on a human-to-human basis? Why does it
1: even matter? Even if – I'm going to slightly disagree with you on this one. Okay. Even if more people individually use religion for good purposes, I I wonder whether the net effect of religion because of wars started in its name yeah. and hatreds that spring – from it, I wonder if the net effect of religion over all of human history isn't negative. I don't know. That would be a great maybe question. That's more for yeah, that's for smarter people than me. But no, it's it's a great know. question.
0: I'm going to push back again because that's a great point. I'm talking about in the immediate future, so okay. it's announced. Right, there's what there's a human being shock reaction. There's no the logic goes out the window. Is that it, – it, does does a long enough time go by where that is the reaction that we don't even get to the point where people can settle in and be like, you know, maybe this isn't the worst thing ever? Yeah. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Well, we talked about David Grash. Of course, he didn't invent, but he probably used it for the first time in relation to this specific subject, the phrase ontological shock, I think yes. he he brought to the table. There could be that. I, I, you, I think you can. I think, in one sense, it's unknowable. You, you wouldn't know until the rubber hits the road which way it would go. Some people, and and it would depend what truth was revealed. But here, here are just just almost bullet pointing a few things. It is possible that if you disclose an extraterrestrial reality, that there will be a groundswell of people who who say, "I, I now view myself." not so much as American or Russian or Christian or Muslim, but a citizen of planet Earth. So mm. maybe it will, will we'll see that we there's more that binds us together than sets us apart. On the other hand, ontological shock, what if part of the story is they made us? And I, I have used before, so you're not getting exclusive here, but I've used the phrase, what if there's a secret too terrible to be told about this, that it's not that there are extraterrestrials or a non-human intelligence that is not classified but it's so inextricably linked to the agenda or the answer to what this is that even the disclosure that we're not alone becomes impossible to make because of the baggage because of what else is part of the story and part of that story maybe they made us or you know either literally physically or in a simulation if you blend yes. this with yes. simulation theory what but what if it's um we are being farmed 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 what if what if the answer is that the government knows that every single individual on planet earth every single day is taken and something is is taken from them and most people don't remember it and just a handful of people do, but we kind of, through a deception operation, we call them the crazy alien abduction people. But actually it happens to every single person on planet Earth because on a farm, every single cow gets milked. And Whoa. so, so yeah, uh, what, if what if there's a dark side? What if we – and, and when, when the farmer moves the cattle between the fields, he doesn't consult the cows you know, so what if that's the situation? This is why I use the phrase, is there a secret too terrible to be told? Is there a dark side to this? That that you can't say we're not alone without getting to somehow. It gets weird. It gets
0: really weird because it gets past that point of what we know consciousness to be or what we think it is and why we exist in the first place and what this is like forget religion for a second we're getting to the core of not even where it began just where we began here it's it is a yeah this is a this keeps me up at night sometimes let me be really on this
1: well let me be really controversial for a moment and, and i think i what are I, we talking, like David Icke controversial? I, I tweeted, <laughs> I'm mixing two subjects that perhaps shouldn't be mixed, but I mix them for a reason. Okay. People say, we're ready for disclosure, you know, bring it on. But we've just discussed, just in bullet point form, a couple of things. I mean, earlier we talked about demons,
0: mm-hmm. and we
1: talked about simulation theory, and we mm-hmm. talked about what if we're being farmed, or what if they made us. Things that would bring us to that ontological shock. Um you know, three or four years ago, whenever it was, news began to come out of China of a mysterious respiratory disease. Oh, you don't say. And um, the rest is history. But look, the point, the reason I'm bringing this up is we had contingency plans for pandemics. And and I've seen some of those contingency plans and they they were very dry and... And they, they covered very practical issues like you know, if, if like, paramedics uh, go on strike because they're too scared to go in, into work or, or they, they get killed off or get sick in large numbers. How do we deal with that? Or we get the military to backfill. Um, what if a million people die? Where are you going to bury them? Mm. Air Force bases. Um, do we have a million body bags? Yes, we do you know all all th- th- those were the global contingency plans for from pandemic those sorts of issues. Nobody predicted that firstly there would be a huge sort of politicization of covid and that we would get into a situation where mandates on on vaccines and lockdowns and masks would would set. Family member against family member. Nobody predicted that? No, I don't think they did. Not in the plans that I read. Nobody considered that there would be screaming hysteria about someone wearing a mask below the nose or above the nose that would lead to assaults and people being thrown off aircraft. And, and, you know, wherever you stand on that issue, look, here's my point. My point is all the people who say we're completely ready for disclosure... Firstly, they don't know what that disclosure involves because it's not just A, it's B and C, where yes. B and C might be some of those things that we've talked about. And you might not even know what D is. And you Exactly. Yeah. And my point, again, is linked to that. If we had contingency plans for global pandemic and we had most of us, not least because we've seen some of the movies and documentaries, intellectually thought about it and yet the world went mad. What would happen with this subject? So my question, and I don't pretend to have the answer, but my question is, are we really as ready as we think? And my kind of answer is, I'm not sure we are, because I don't know what's behind the curtain, but I could conceive that there would be things by the behind the curtain that would be profoundly disturbing at a visceral level to people that would bring us to panic in the streets, ontological shock, and societal collapse.
0: One of my first
1: podcasts I did back
0: at the beginning of this thing was with my friend Alex Horowitz, who at the time was the chief of staff at a company called Eight Sleep, which is unbelievable. They still I still have the affiliate link to this day. They were my first sponsor, but it's it's basically like the science way to sleep. It's got they got covers, they got they got a mattress, whatever you want and it uses it uses different temperature liquid to study all the different variables in your body and get you the perfect REM sleep. So, really smart guy who was one of the early employees there and we had a wild rambling conversation that actually turned into two episodes. I think it was I think it was number 17 and 18. And One of the things he said in number 17, being someone who's very, very ingrained in Silicon Valley and and the tech world and how these products work and the people who are behind them, one of the things he said that I'm going to paraphrase because I won't say it as well as he did. But it sticks with me and I think is one of the wilder things anyone ever said on the podcast is that these companies, referring to social media companies in particular, can simulate behavior ahead of time. Effectively, they have the tools to be able to create a matrix of an individual to decide exactly how they can pull on their strings to get them to do action A or action B or action C or action D. Some of the public ways we've seen this come forth are, for example, the digital campaign you saw with Cambridge Analytica back in the US election in 2016, where they were able to create get into way too much data that they shouldn't have been allowed to get to and create these profiles of people to basically like kind of prey on their fears to get them to vote in a certain way or things like that. And so I might disagree with part of your point, not all of it, because this is so unknown. This is so uncharted. It gets to the meaning of life. I think part of what you say is right, but I push back on some of it and say that there has to be some ability for... The powerful few, be it governments working in concert with major corporations and vice versa, that they could perhaps simulate some of that ontological shock that could occur. I don't think they'd get that perfect, but I, I think they could simulate some of it.
1: And what if they've simulated it and the results are such that they think, geez, we can't do this. Right. And, and you know, it's it's right. interesting, which brings us... Nicely, I think, in a sense, to things like the Schumer Rounds amendment, which which oh, I yes. think uh, yeah. literally is being obviously it's in the the Senate passed National Defense Authorization Act or the draft NDAA for for next year. but now, I mean, I think literally this week, it the the, the Senate and the House get together and they're like, OK, what's going in and what's staying out? And there's always this horse trading. And and of course, UFO Twitter or UFO X
2: yeah.
1: is up in arms because and and they're saying, oh, look, all, all the most robust bits in the Schumer rounds amendment.
0: And what specific just for people out there who aren't following, what is
1: what is that specifically like top line points do if well, it were to pass the um, it's a 64-page amendment which will slot into the the uh 2024 defense bill and it uses in the definitions section the phrase well no it it uses um the phrase non-human intelligences 22 times as if it's a thing that as if everyone knows this is this is a thing and it basically um for example there's an eminent domain provision, which will will force the government to take possession of any physical or biological UAP-related materials in the hands of the private sector, because of course, for years it's been alleged that some yes. of this has been, you know, taken outside of, of government, Lockheed, put into like yeah, that. Lockheed, yeah. you know, Battelle. So the government would North, be able to come yeah. in
0: and say – I mean they already work hand would, Wouldn't them,
1: be able to, deal. would be forced to Yeah. because it would then be in – so no private individual or corporation would be legally allowed to, to have this. No program relating to UAP – and this is the thing. Always go after the money. No program would be able to be funded if it was not subject to – Congressional oversight, mm. um, and again, the allegation is that some of this has been improperly and probably illegally taken outside of congressional oversight. I mean, there was no co- congressional oversight on ATIP even. Um, nobody had heard of it. Even Alexander's even, even mm. the Gang of Eight. I mean, kind of yeah. You know, so so th- there's a lot of robust. UAP related material in in this Schuman, uh, Schumer rounds amendment. Now the good news is it's not the only UAP related material. There was going to be an independent records review board which was going to basically it would have been the law that they would have had to have seen all documents pertaining to any of this and then decide what, get, what gets made public and what doesn't. That would have introduced a level of oversight over and above Congress even, because some of these people would have been independent. Mm. So um, the rumors are that this week some or all of this will get basically negotiated out and, and it will not go forward. Other things, not in other UAP material, will go forward. And, of course, there's UAP material in the current defense bill, which for example, mandates the DOD and the ODNI to report to Congress by June of 2024 on all previous U.S. government programs that related to UAP – but
0: how could they even have oversight on it if they wouldn't even know where to
1: look? Well, exactly, and this is why so much of this is frustrating. Sort of argue yourself round in circles, territory, yeah. and and even Harry Reid, for example, who set up ATIP and was one of the so-called gang of eight, who who are yes, you know most see most of the stuff, says I asked about the material in Lockheed, and he said, and I couldn't get to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Harry Reid's an interesting one. Obviously, he was in our mutual friend James Fox's documentary, The Phenomenon. James talked to him towards the end of his life about – and there were some other people who got to talk to him as well after that about what he tried to look for in this stuff. I found it very fascinating that almost immediately after leaving public life, he was ready to talk about that and how blunt he was about even some of the folklore – kind of stuff that I I think really has something to it and and of course I mean perfect little segue with this as well but we've already touched on it today with with some of the history in England but you know you've had an odd pattern since World War 2 in particular where nuclear bases around the world not just in america that's something i think a lot of people forget sometimes this is in russia it's i believe it's been in china some other places you guys can check me on that but nuclear bases will have weird indiscriminate things happen and then full-blown sightings of ufos that basically show them no 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 hands off the trigger here and you know when i had james in here for a couple episodes In early 2022 or 2023, the first episode, we talked a lot about the phenomenon. The second one was all about moment of contact. And in that first episode, 138, you know, he talks about that story that Bob Salas told him, who's one of these witnesses, about how it was almost like they were trying to take matches out of the hands of a baby. And I used to have in my – we're in my new studio now. But in my old studio, I used to have two pictures on one wall, one on top of the other. And one picture was – the bombing of that island that we did as a test nuke in 1946. I always forget. Bikini Atoll, Atol, that's it. And then the other one was the famous picture of the hand of God and Adam. But instead of the hand of God, it was, it was a robot hand to kind of show like AI. But I look at it and I say, damn, we have had this technology as a human race since effectively World War II. We all know about the two times it was used to end the war in the Pacific, which is certainly interesting history to look at. But other than that, despite all the problems this world has had with even crazy regimes run by dictators that have their hands near a trigger sometimes, we've never gone there. And it's only been 80 years, but it's fascinating to me that it's not like all of UFO history has happened since World War II. As you said earlier, there is history before that. We can, go, we can all go look at it. But the heaviest part of sightings that seem consistent have happened since World War II, and there is a large volume of them that occurs on nuclear bases. So is there anything – I don't know if declassified is the word – but anything that you are allowed to speak to on the record that perhaps – outside of what we already have – that perhaps supports or goes against this narrative about the bases?
1: It's it's an interesting one, and I, I mean I think you've you've unpacked it very well, and I, I'm probably maybe going to duplicate a couple of things you said, but put my own kind of take on it. There is, the, and, and I know people like Robert Salas, and and I'm certainly aware of all these cases, like Malmstrom, um the Ukraine one actually from from 1982 is is the really interesting one because. Can you talk about that one? Um, not in a huge amount of detail because I can't recollect it, but but unlike cases where it's alleged that nuclear weapons were shut down, this 1982 case is one where it's claimed that nuclear weapons, after UFO activity near the base, were put into their pre-launch sequence. So it, it was like kind of the opposite. So, but, yeah, it took, yeah. yeah, yeah. But in either of that. those events, I guess there is part of the UFO lobby community, whatever you who who say look this is the extraterrestrials saying to us you know ah uh, 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 um if if you do it we won't let you do it or or you know I, which i think a couple of things firstly let me give the the very dry government argument on this we don't really know whether ufo's and nukes is a thing because in the preliminary assessment of UAP that was published on June 25th, 2021, the ODNI said, words to the effect of, in relation to um, anecdotal evidence about UAP activity near nuclear facilities, we don't know if this is a genuine thing or whether it's collection bias. In other words, they were saying, nuclear facilities whether they're power stations missile silos you know are by their nature more proportionally much more heavily surveilled mm. therefore are we seeing a collection bias where where these incidents are showing up and getting noted just because we've got eyes on that all mm. the time that the good news is that's one of the things in the 2023 defense bill that congress has told DOD and the ODNI to go find out is it is this a real thing? Are new is there a UFO nuke collect, connection or is it just collection bias? Right. So that's the first thing. Secondly, is I think there's a danger of a bit of New Ageism creeping in here, which I think is kind of unhelpful because there's part of the New the the UFO community at the New Age wing that are all kind of oh the space brothers and the space sisters they'll they'll stop us if if we ever do press the button they'll step in mm-hmm. and they've shown us that they can deactivate our nukes and i think that's a a bad attitude to have i mean maybe it doesn't matter if people think it but it would if anyone ever thinks anyone in political military leadership positions ever think doesn't matter if we ever press the button because even if we did the aliens will come and save us mm. I mean it's it's that extremely unhelpful you've got a safety net when really our mindset should be there is no safety net once you press that button Agreed. that's it you're dead your family is dead Agreed. you know so mutually assured destruction only works because if you think if you press the button, you yourself and your family and your friends will will be on the receiving end of the other side, because right. so that's why it works. And I think this idea that the space brothers and sisters are going to come and you know stop us is, I I would say, unhelpful. I, I would say I agree with that. We should naive not rely on that. Yes, as well. Yes. I mean, you know, of course you'd love it to be true, but. But there's no evidence that it is, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki suggest that it isn't. Again,
0: though, a lot I- of these, I'd have to go look at the timeline. Perhaps there was, there was one before, I'm not remembering, but these occur, I, I believe, it could, the first one that's been reported, I don't think, was before 1947, which is ironic to me because that would mean it was after we actually showed, oh, we're going to use this stuff and we've never used it since there's been nuclear tests out in you know discrete places there we know Russia's done a ton of those the US does a ton of them i think China's done some but there hasn't it has not been used as a weapon
1: in war at any point
0: that you know but i'm i'm with you though it's, you don't
1: want to rely on it it's that. it's very difficult because you know uh, you could say well trinity was was what was it may 45, whenever it was. I don't know. Um, then there was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So could you say, well, if we're being monitored by extraterrestrials, um, they might have noticed the first test, or it might they might not have been looking, and they might have written us off as, well, they won't get nuclear technology for another couple of hundred years, and then suddenly, shoot, wow, they did it. Yeah. Oh, now we need to pay attention. The kids have found the matches, like you say. Yes, um, Or... Was it that, that they weren't watching and they missed it? Or was it, well, even Hiroshima and Nagasaki are morally justified, so we'll let them do that because it will end a war that, if not for that, will cost more lives in the long run? I, I don't know. You can argue this around forever. Then you can say, did the modern UFO phenomenon start in 47? But then you can say, what about the Trinity crash in 45? Uh, what about the 33? crash that David Grush talks yes. about, the, the yes. Italy one. And what about all the UFO sightings going back, arguably, if if you subscribe to ancient astronaut theory oh, to the dawn yeah, of time. For, yeah, forever. Yeah. So so I I I don't know. You can back and forth with this forever.
0: Yeah, you, you could. And and like you said, it's not it's not any one thing. There is just an odd pattern on the timeline there for that particular pocket of Supposed sightings. I mean, look, you have the famous one, like a '94 in Zimbabwe, which has nothing to do with that. Which is with the kids and the potential telepathy, which you mentioned earlier with with the other one in England. Like, there there are patterns to that stuff as well. And and I mean, the the question that I had had when we were going through the Ramblesham. Did I say that? Rendlesham? Y- Rendlesham? Rendlesham. Rendlesham. God damn it. We were going through Rendlesham. I keep getting – every time I go to say it, I get afraid to say it because I'm like, I'm going to mess it up. We were going through the Rendlesham thing, and, and we were talking about the the code that was decrypted as potentially like from year 8100 and getting to the concept of future humans. This is where it gets really weird. I put a pin in that back then, but I'm come back to it now because you start to get into – The multiverse theory of like the rivers of time. So I had in Brian Keating recently who's a physicist who actually for a lot of his adult life was at the South Pole measuring what they thought was going to be not only like a Nobel Nobel Prize winning discovery but also something that this light that was going to basically say i'm going to put it in layman's terms or the best i can is basically going to prove that the universe is inflationary and if they had proven that the 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 wild conclusion that would have to come of that according to him is that there has to be a multiverse the universe cannot be inflationary without a multiverse now it turns out the light that they thought that they were watching over these years turned out to be universal dust so it it didn't work but he still has in the back of his mind, like I, I think we might be able to prove the universe is inflationary. What I get wrong so much when I think about this stuff though, and I know a lot of us who think about it do get it wrong, is that when we think of time travel per se and what that could be or moving across dimensions in a multiverse way, to use Michukaku's example, for example, if you went back in time and stopped Lincoln from being assassinated… You would not be changing the reality of the of the part of the multiverse that you are coming from. You would be creating an entirely different river off of that that creates a separate universe where you, where Lincoln was not killed. So it becomes an infinite type thing. Yeah. So if we have to go back to this, if these instances are in fact future humans, the fact that. We're citing it or potentially citing it and seeing it means that the multiverse they're coming from is not the one that's going to exist that we know in this one because we're changed by the impetus or the the event that they put in our timeline,
1: yes, I mean you know I don't have the the theoretical physics knowledge to do this i mean i barely know my way around <laughs> grandfather paradox and, and all that. You're doing um, well. I will mention, I mean, and, and of course you mentioned Michio Kaku. That's interesting because you could say under string theory, for example, one actually needs the existence of of extra so-called hidden dimensions for the, the string theory equations to work. And I can't remember what the numbers are, but I think there are two main branches of string theory, one of which has something like 11 Dimensions and one, it's something like twenty, yes, I think, two right or twenty-four, that. whatever it is. And Michio Kaku and others are, are using the Large Hadron Collider particle accelerator to look for evidential kind of fingerprints of these so-called yes. hidden dimensions. But then the question of of multiple infinite, I guess, parallel universes um, is a sort of related but arguably separate idea to the idea of different dimensions because you could have one, one universe that has not just the four dimensions that we experience, but 11 or 24 or whatever it is, but that could still be the only universe. Then you could have a multiverse, and then you could have sort of infinite par- parallel universes Where where, to take your example, there's an infinite number of universes where Lincoln was assassinated, and an infinite number yes. where he wasn't. Yes. Um, so all of this is a, a bit of a, you know, a difficult one to get one's, one's mind around. But it just shows the complexities of all this. I will mention because it's quite a fun, um, little, kind of postscript. There's one of the very few theoretical physicists doing research into time travel is uh, Dr. Ronald Mallet, Professor Mallet. Could pull that up. And. Um, he got into it in quite a nice way. I think he was he was so upset by the death of his father and I don't think he was conventionally religious that he wondered, is is there another way that I could mm. ever see him? Well, I could invent a time machine. And um, so, and, and one of, I may be mangling the science here, but Ronald Mallet had this idea that to send a message back in time, you could use... A subatomic particle like a neutrino that had a, a spin state of either up or down. And what would that be? It would be a binary message that you could send back through time. <laughs> and of course, Jim Peniston knew nothing of of any of this. And I, I, I think it, you know, so I, I don't know. But it, it is interesting that one of the few theoretical physicists who thought, whose thought and is doing work on time travel, says the way you would send a message back through time would be using binary. That is... <laughs> That's <laughs>
0: blowing my mind right there.
1: I, I want to make sure I come
0: back to a couple things before you get out of here that I wanted to talk about for a little bit. And we're definitely going to have to have you back if you'll be back. I mean, you, this has been awesome today. But I've been talking with my guy, Michelangelo, who's on UFO Twitter and just kind of Reports whatever's being talked about with UFOs. And I had asked, I had told him you were coming in. I said, is there, is there anything you'd really want brought up? And he said, Yeah. And I could have brought it up earlier, but you were going to the Rendlesham thing. And I thought that was really important. So I put a pin in it. But it's interesting timing in that you got into the office in 91. We already covered why that's interesting from a foreign policy perspective and what was going on in the world. But also what Mike wanted to ask about was the Calvert incident of 1990, which would have been right before you, which I'm not sure, based on what you were saying earlier, if that would have classified it at that point as already a cold case file that had been closed and you guys still had to check it out, or if this was an investigation that you got to actively take over. So if you wouldn't mind, can you just walk people through what happened there and then explain
1: if you had a a role in in looking into that? The way that I – politely put it is that that my predecessor did the investigation i inherited the fallout <laughs> um, this is uh the Calvin incident calveen is is oh, I said um, calvert god damn it um Cal- Calvin is a tiny little place near uh, a town called pet lockery in scotland and in august 1990 uh, two guys were out in the countryside when they witnessed a large diamond shaped craft that was apparently being either buzzed or escorted by military jets and this diamond shaped gray diamond shaped craft apparently was hovering or moving very slowly quite you know daylight sighting quite you know low above the ground level And apparently it then, uh, after the aircraft circling it a couple of times, it it just went up vertically at incredible speed.
0: Similar to Rendlesham.
1: Yes. What's unusual about this is that they took six photographs of it. And to cut a long, complicated story very short... Uh, They then contacted a local newspaper, said, we've had the most amazing sighting and we've got daylight photos clear as a bell. The newspaper then reached out to the Ministry of Defence for a comment. And the Ministry of Defence said, we can't comment until we see the photos. Um, But if you want us to, to give a proper comment and do a proper analysis, you'll need to send us the photos and the negatives, big mistake. Mm. Um, for whatever reason, the newspaper complied. We got that material. Uh, we we did various investigations at various different times. And um, the assessment was this is not a hoax. It's a real solid object. It's about, I can't remember exactly, 75, 75 feet in diameter, perhaps. No, <clears throat> no obvious uh, kind of like the tic tac, but a different shape. But but my point is, no obvious kind of wings, tail, fuselage, engines, flaps, aeronauts. anything you know, none none of the usual stuff. Um, we don't know what it is. We don't know how it flies. It does seem to be real. Uh, we, when I, on that first day that I went into that office, the newspaper, by the way, never got the photos or negatives back. And of course for, they didn't. For, for whatever reason, maybe embarrassment, um, never ran a story on it either. Never even ran a story saying we had. I and mean, in one sense, you can understand it. You wouldn't want the story to be we had the best UFO photo ever <laughs> in the history of the world. And we got tricked into giving it up to the Ministry of Defence. Yeah, but, not a good look. But maybe there was a mixture of carrot and stick there and and you know there are ways on on certain national security stories where where it's a voluntary code but there is a code and if editors are persuaded that it's a good case you you wouldn't run a story how to build an, a nuke in, in your basement. You're right. Um, here's how you do it. So you know there are ways of killing Stories, if, if there are genuine national security concerns. And by the way, this was this sighting took place, which is an interesting coincidence or maybe not. I think literally one or two days after Saddam Hussein went across the border into Kuwait. So it, that's the geopolitical backdrop to this. I can't remember whether, whether the date was like the what August 2nd 1990 was it 2nd or 3rd whatever it was Whoa. um maybe Calvin was the 4th or 5th um all, all this is kind of from memory but anyway I had on my office wall a poster sized full color blow up of the best of the six pictures and I, I was there in that office for three years. It was up there for most of the time. Right. How to, big How big are we talking? Um, so Yay, big size. by so yeah. big. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it was on the wall. One time I, I went on leave. I came back from leave and the picture was missing. And I'm like, what? Hey, where's our, where's our poster? And somebody said, oh, the, the head of division took it. Ooh. And I'm like boss what's going on and he's like well i don't believe in aliens so it can't be aliens therefore i mean i'm paraphrasing it can only be some sort of secret prototype aircraft in which case whether it's ours or an allies or an adversary's, but in any of those scenarios it shouldn't be on the office wall so (laughs) he locked it in his safe along with the other ts documents I feel and, like
0: I feel like that newspaper wasn't necessarily tricked into giving up those negatives I feel like they were maybe
1: pressured to do that. Uh that could be the case. Yeah. But but however it was done and and there are a number of perfectly legal ways it could be done. Um but neither the newspaper never ran a story and the witnesses have never come forward. One time I went to an intelligence briefing and Of course, we didn't need people to tell us about this photo. We had it on our own wall. But the briefer pulled out one of the photos and he said, see this picture here, he said. He said, we, you know, intelligence community imagery analysts have looked at this. They've deployed the full resources and capabilities of their trade onto this. He said, and he started gesticulating. He said, said, we know... It's not American, he said, and it's not Russian. He said, so that only leaves, and he went like that. And we looked at his finger, we looked at the ceiling, we looked down, we looked at each other, me and my boss, and it's like, okay. And that was the end of the briefing. And he could say they knew it wasn't
0: the U.S. and they knew it wasn't Russia, that's, but what if they don't even know about the programs that would run it?
1: Well, you know, you can, Yeah. Even if you think you have the highest security clearance and best right. need to know in the world, you can never be a hundred percent sure that there isn't some person two offices down with an even higher clearance who is reading on that program. So yeah, never say never. Right. But you can play the percentages game, and and you know you can be reasonably certain. But and and this is my recollection of a conversation over thirty years ago. So I may when. When I say he said, we know it's not Russia. We know it's not America. You know, I, I'm not a hundred percent on you know whether he said no, or whether he just said it's not Russia, or it's I I I don't know. But the the point was he said, and that only leaves mm. and. He never articulated what that was, and, and it was like my boss was like, "Did he mean China?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Boss, boss, no. he did not mean China." You know. No. So, and and the postscript to this story, of course, is is that um, James Fox, for example, talks about how how recently um, uh, a, a retired Royal Air Force press officer public affairs officer called Craig Lindsay came forward and and has apparently in his possession, which a number of, of UFO researchers in the UK have published, supposedly one of the original pictures that he kept. Now, for years, I, a few years ago, I was involved in a TV documentary on this. And because this poster was on my wall for years, it was indelibly imprinted onto my memory. So through a combination of that and some a poor black and white photocopy in one of the declassified files, we did a recreation. We did a CGI recreation of this. But now, about a year or so ago, Craig Lindsay came forward and said, Hey, I, I was involved in this and I know Craig. You know, I met him once. He came he came to our office and 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 so he is who he says he is. And he has come forward and said, Look, I've got one of the original pictures, so we don't need a CGI recreation anymore. Here's the real thing. And this is where we, we have another NCND moment coming up. The Ministry of Defence has not commented right. on the provenance of the Craig Lindsay photo. Neither confirmed nor did So I. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on that either. But you had that thing but
0: sitting I for I had
1: that sitting for the best part of three years on my office wall, and it was pretty darned impressive. So so when when uh, when when you got told, hey, ask Nick this, that's that was a good question, for sure. Yeah. And I know James Fox is going to do a deep dive into that in his next film.
0: Right, and the well the one after this one he's making, which you're going to be in this upcoming uh, No, I think one. this is the same one. Oh, he's
1: doing that in this I think in the, in in the one that he's just the one that he's oh, just yeah, finished yeah, 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 filming yeah, 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 yeah. and that he's now it's in post production or it's in 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 the edit. Yeah. Um, that one is going to cover Calvin.
0: We're not, we're not allowed to say the name of that yet, right? That's not... No. Yeah, okay. All right, We right, he's got a sick name for it. Okay. But that's... I, I was thinking of it because a lot... And he's talked about this publicly, but a lot of it is focusing on... DC related to this, but then you're right. He did go over and he publicized this too. He went over to the UK this past summer to talk with... What's that hacker's name again? Gary McKinnon. Gary McKinnon. And investigate, and it was, yeah, it was Calvary. And, That's and right.
1: you know, just to really throw something out there, I, I and I can't remember, I've seen this speculated about, and I don't want to comment on it, but I will just throw it into the conversation because it's amazing sometimes the connections you see. I'm not commenting on it, but okay. I have seen it put out there on social media that one of the U.S. officials who came over to discuss this with UK intelligence personnel um, because there was a conversation about Calvin. Is this one of yours? Is this one of... No, no, is, is this one of yours? Well, if it's not yours and it's not... Whose is it? it? It has been put out there on social media that one of the US officials who came over to have that conversation was Christopher Mellon. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to comment on it, but isn't it interesting how one can th- the same names crop up sometimes and and there are some interesting dots to be joined. But like I say, I've seen it speculated upon I'm, I'm, I'm not commenting on it, and I don't yeah, know I'm, that. So he, not, yeah, I don't know whether he has addressed it or not.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be respectful if, and yeah, not if, follow that if up. If he, yeah,
1: if he wants to address that, but but you know, let get him in here. One sees all sorts of it. things on social media, and yeah, you know, some of them are true, and some of them are not true.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said on something earlier, like guys have a job to do with certain things. I'm I'm a realist about that, but you know, you kind of like to know which people are still sure. working for the government or not. I know you have to deal with questions like that all the time. I think yours is a little different though, like you're over here talking about it. You live in America now, you know those guys are from here. they're talking about it all here but
1: oh yeah and I and mean, i've say I faced those same accusations oh, yeah. i i mean yeah. there are i'm i you know I don't necessarily know whether we want to name names, but I think it's it's no secret in the u f o community that there are a number of people, one in particular fairly high profile one. who who who, who, who says that I am still secretly working for the government or the, the deep state or whatever the accusation is. And my role apparently is to ramp up the threat narrative in the media. And uh, I, I, I think Chris and Lou and and uh, Leslie Kane and a couple of others have been been subject to similar Accusations, but the uh, the accusation is particularly insidious because it's very specific. There's a bizarre yeah. kind of aspect to this story that apparently I have bought three properties in Soho, with, <laughs> and, and this is kind of. But but you know that's why I say insidious because if it's just oh Nick's still secretly working for the yeah. government, that's kind of whatever. But the and he's it's so specific that it makes people go ooh. But my response to that is, look, wait a minute, just apply common sense. If I was secretly working for the government, I would get my Illuminati or government or deep state <laughs> salary, right? Right. I wouldn't need to be given a big bribe
2: well, I mean, they, they, to, they,
1: to buy you know, properties in Soho. I mean, I would just get my Illuminati salary. That's your job. Now get Illuminati on
0: with it. Illuminati salary. <laughs> yeah, Greer is... I don't is know, Greer. I don't know the guy... Sean Ryan knows him well. I haven't really talked with Sean at length about that, though. But uh, to me, it's always been projection. That's just my take. Uh, He, like, the guy who to me, and I know you know him, so, you know, not to put you on the spot or anything, you don't have to respond to this, but the guy to me who I think is very obviously still working with the government is Lou Elizondo. That's been discussed a lot on this podcast. I'm not saying I have a problem with him for that either. I get it. Like, you know, there's jobs to do but Greer is another one to me, and again, I don't know, but it's always felt like some projection, and he will say things that are patently fucking ridiculous. Like, I think, am I gonna get this quote right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Alessi, you, you know this one, but he when he was on with Sean Ryan the first time, he's like, the CIA offered me $2 billion to be quiet, and, uh, or they'd kill me, and I told him to fuck off. Is that about yeah. right? okay so why are you talking about it on the fucking sean ryan show with no security 20 years later
1: yeah you know what i mean mean, when i
0: hear shit like that i'm like
1: look i when i sit down and have a beer with somebody whose background is government military or intelligence and sometimes those are kind of yes interchangeable fluid whatever absolutely we talk the same language, you get the vibe. You, you can kind of tell when you talk to someone that's done government work because it's sometimes it's the silly stories about something that happened in their we talked about this right at the beginning. Some silly story about what they had to go through in their final interview for their, their security clearance. Or or it's just you can't some sometimes and that I've put into words, sometimes it's something you can't even put it into words but if you're a cop and you walk into a cop bar you'll spot the cops right. right and some of it is body language some of it is the way they look and carry themselves some of it is the 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 terminology that they use and and sometimes sometimes it's it's it, it's the nonverbal things and but you can just tell i get that vibe obviously and as do you from from Lou. Lou is obviously and I'm not saying whether he is and I don't know whether he is yeah, I'm or not, not, not still working. Negative. But what I do know is that 100% you you only have to be in this guy's company about 10 seconds mm. to know that he's moved in those circles and and he's he's done those those things. I do not get that vibe from Stephen Greer. So I'm not one of those people that says Ste- Stephen Greer to me does not come across as government military or intelligence community. It just felt like, I mean,
0: again, I don't, I've never sat with them and I wouldn't be able to spot it like, like you can because no. you've lived in this world, but it didn't, Well, it has always felt like, it has this weird feeling of like, oh, God, I feel like that's projection. But well, that's just but, me.
1: But then there's the other kind of thing that sometimes people who are want to put across that they aren't. Yeah. And then sometimes people who aren't want to imply that they are. And then sometimes people who are want to imply that they aren't so that you think that they are, but they really aren't because they are. I lost you half a sentence ago, but yeah, I'm just going to nod and agree with you. Yeah, 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 that's right.
0: No, but you have such a classy way of dealing with that too. Like, apparently I'm a a government informant. I I didn't know this. (laughs) Like in America, we're like, yo, fuck that guy. (laughs) There's like such a back and forth. But one last thing before we go out and again... We're going to have to bring you back because there's a lot we didn't talk about. But there's there's a story that was breaking today that I only saw like right before we went on camera involving a CIA claim about potential retrieval programs. Do you know anything about this?
1: Yes, this was a story in the Daily Mail, um, and I I think – um Josh uh Josh Boswell Josh and Boswell, Chris, Chris Sharp, Sharp Matt Ford and yeah um, and and they're they're getting a lot of they they obviously do have a lot of good sources and I think it's the CIA's uh, global access office uh if I have that right which is part of their science and technology division and it's alleged that uh, sources have apparently told the the Daily Mail reporters that this CIA office has been involved in nine or at least nine crash retrievals, including two where the objects are intact or, or almost completely intact, which which raises the question were these and – I've seen all sorts of things put out there that some of these things are apparently almost like gifts. They're, they're landed and then left. For us. I don't know. This takes See, us into. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's, I'm,
0: I'm going to read this real quick just so we have it. So, the title of the article is CIA's Secret Office has conducted UFO retrieval missions on at least nine crash sites around the world. Whistleblowers reveal. Leslie, can you scroll down? I'm going to read the article. A secretive CIA office. Scroll up a little bit. CIA office has been conducting the retrieval of crash UFOs around the world for decades, multiple sources told Daily Mail. One source said that at least nine apparent, quote, non-human craft, unquote, have been recovered by the U.S. government, some wrecked from a crash, and two completely intact. Three sources briefed on the alleged top secretive... Operations told Daily Mail that the Office of Global Access, a wing of the Central Intelligence Agency's and Technology Directorate, has played a central role since 2003 in orchestrating the collection of what could be alien spacecraft. The three sources who spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid reprisals have all been briefed by individuals involved in those alleged UFO retrieval missions. So this is secondhand. Though the shocking claims sound like they come from a science fiction novel, they are part of a growing body of evidence suggesting the U.S. government could indeed be hiding advanced vehicles that were not made by humans.
1: Well, you know, there's an old saying in the intelligence analyst community.
0: Fool me once. Can't get fooled again.
1: Well, not that one. <laughs> the saying is interesting if true. Mm. And that's where we are with this. And, and you know, that brings us it's – a, it's a nice place to actually end up on because it brings us to where we are with so much of this, with whether it's, it's this story, whether it's the David Grush story, whether it's the other uh, – whether it's Carl Nell, whether it's some of the other whistleblowers who have apparently come forward but whose stories and names we don't yet know but will shortly – I understand some of them um, – a lot of different people are investigating all this right now, and this is good news, but it's also bad news. The good news is that a lot of people have their finger in the pie. The bad news is a lot of people have their finger in the pie mm. because it gets very confusing. So we have, for example, and you know, people like Lou and, and Dave Grash have made complaints. I think one to the um, DoD Inspector General, one to the intelligence community inspector general. Lou's complaint may now be closed. Dave's, I think, is still open. But there is confusion about whether the DOD IG and the ICIG are or are not actively investigating Grush's claims and some of these other claims. Mm. And then, of course, we've got Arrow, who some people make out to be the the bad guys here, I guess that the Pentagon's all domain anomaly resolution office currently directed by Sean Kirkpatrick, but he's, he's stepping down next month. Timothy Phillips, his deputy takes over. It's not clear whether he's going to get the job permanently or whether there's going to be a new director put in probably mm. early 2024. I don't know how that will play. And I don't know whether this was a planned move or a you know, there are a lot of rumors sure. flying around. Anyway, point is that, that so DOD IG and, and ICIG may or may not be looking at some of this. Arrow are looking at some of this. There's dispute over whether David Grush has or has not been invited to come in and – and all that. But then there's Congress. And this is where it gets really confusing because it's both in the Senate and the House. And in each part, it's the Armed Forces Committees, the Intelligence Committees, the Oversight Committees, maybe in some cases, even the Appropriations Committees. So there are lots of different people, some of whom may have sufficient security clearance to, to be briefed on some of this, others of whom may not. And it's all a bit of a mess. So there's a lot in play right right now. And I don't know how, whether some of this is going to get resolved over the next few weeks and months, or more likely whether more information will drop, more whistleblowers, and it's just going to confuse things even further. So interesting times.
0: Very interesting times. As things do develop, we got to have you back in. You live right here. So we got no excuses not to bring you in. This was... (laughs) absolutely awesome i really appreciate you coming in on shorter notice as well but we'll do it again thank you all right everybody else you know what it is give it a thought get back to me peace Thank you for watching this episode, guys. If you haven't already, please smash that subscribe button and hit that like button on the video. It is a huge, huge help to getting our videos into the algorithm on YouTube. So thank you to everyone who does that. And also, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can get me at Julian Dory Podcast for daily exclusive clips that we put out from the show or on my personal page at Julian D. Dory. The links are in the description below. See you guys for the next one.